Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perotti. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hey, everybody, it is your good friend, Dr. David Proden from down here in the North Star Recording Studio, wishing you a happy Monday, March 21st, 2022. Yes, the leprechaun was here. No, the leprechaun did not bring warm weather. It is going to be below normal here for the next 10 days, which is too long. I don't like it. But um, got my bike tuned up yesterday, so I'm ready to roll. Just it's going to be a couple more weeks yet because it's cold here. So in the background, you're going to see, and you might see well, over here, I guess, both of my books. So I modified the stands to minimize the reflection, although they, the camera's not focusing in on those right now. But a welcome here, first of all, to uh, Yo, 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 Flying Rich, Toy Town Inc., Solitude Surfer, Vanessa, um, C&T. Hey, welcome, buddy. Robert Ribbit Harrison, Zero White Oil. Which reminds me, um, I need to uh, schedule uh, oil changes for both of our vehicles. So got a note on that. Um, and we don't put on a lot of miles. So that's, um, anyway, that's coming up. Um, and uh, yeah, Vanessa. So hey, welcome, welcome. And our good friend Zippy. All right. So yes, welcome to the show. Today's title is Crisis versus Chaos, Bifurcation and Strange Attractors. Don't let those terms freak you out. I'm going to go through, talk to you, um, you know, about what those are. Some of you already know that, right? But uh, so, um, but we're going to break it down. And, and these are terms actually, I mean, I was familiar with bifurcation. I wasn't familiar with strange attractors until I wrote my book and talked to people about it and how to apply it. So, um but I wanted to spend some time, and I'm going to do a read from the Velocity of Information today, So, which is a good transition to right here. This is an awesome book, The Velocity of Information. Um, order it. It is uh, in paperback. This is hard copy. It's also an ebook. So, yeah, this uh, comes out officially April 1st. But if you order it now, then, yeah, it should ship on close to April 1st. So, yeah. Um, I've noticed like these are showing up in libraries across the country. <laughs> so I have like this interface where I can check where my books are. Some of them, I mean, like, but um, some of the places where they're at, but it's, it's already appearing in libraries. So I, um, yeah, I've got my copy and then um, I donated two copies yesterday to, or not yesterday, on Thursday, I donated two copies to our library in my town. We have a beautiful library, absolutely beautiful. Um, it was built about 20 years ago, and then it was basically like double in size a couple of years ago. Um, but just really a just terrific layout. Um, and it's in a part of town where if you leave the library, you're a block away from the River Walk, the Wisconsin River Levee Walk. So it's really cool. And you, you get to go um, a, a couple blocks and you're at a a canal in my home in my town here that's 200 years old. So parts of this canal were preserved, used to connect the Fox in Wisconsin. So you could go from the Atlantic to the Gulf of Mexico right through 
where I live. But anyway, I want to I want to show this to you. Whoa, I almost lost my voice there. But um, this is this is my uh, boy. I know this is the newspaper today. And uh, so, yeah, Russia bombs another shelter here at the Portage Jelly Register. But no, there's me right there, right there, right there is me. And uh, with the librarians, let's do the, the kind of full page effect here. So um, author explores chaos. There's me donating to Chris Baker, the librarian. And then a uh, nice write-up by uh, Anna Hansen. And this goes on then to... Uh, page five, but yeah, so I got front page uh, dibs right there, and it, it's cool. Uh, so you can take a look there, and um, yeah, yeah. So I donated two hard hardbacks to the library and inscribed them. Um, <laughs> the funny thing is, like, I I haven't practiced my book signature for quite a while because of School of Airs. I had a, a specific way that I signed those books. And so when I signed both of these books, um, it's more like I'm signing, it was more like signing a legal document. Like, <laughs> um, how should I say? It didn't have the flair that was that was there for my typical signatures. It's kind of a serious signature, which is okay, because who's going to look at your signature in a book that's in the library? And then, you know, I have some little uh, kind of phrases that I pull out of the book. And I put two in those. And then I stamped it here with my really cool stamp. And then I dated it. So, but yeah, hard copy. I mean, it's nice. So the library was excited to get those. Beautiful um, article today, front page, right? So, and then, you know, their e-version of that. Uh, so that's cool. Like, I'm really, um, really glad about that. Um, so there was a quirky thing, though, with that. Um, articles. So last yesterday afternoon, the article went online on the eVersion site. So I was reading through it, and my middle initial was incorrect on the on the article. It was an S, not a not a P. Not maybe a big deal, but it, it kind of is a big deal because the book says David P. Broden, and then all of the um, SEO, all of my work is David P. Broden, right? It all links together. And the reason I do David P. Proden is because there's a David D. Proden who lives in France, who does work similar to what I do. He's a university professor. They actually kind of look alike. Like he has a much more robust uh, Google scholarly page. I contacted him a, a couple times uh, because periodically people would send me stuff that's intended for him. So I get like an email in French and I have to like do the Google Translate. And I say, oh, I think here's the person you're trying to get hold of. So he's a great guy but I need it to distinguish myself. Um, so that's when I started to use my middle initial for like the last, I don't know, five years or so. So um, if it was David S. Proden, right, if people were searching for that, uh, it's not going to initially, I don't know who it would take them to. So I got a hold of the person that interviewed me, thankfully on a Sunday, like sent an email and said, hey, like the middle initial is incorrect. And she's like, whoa, like she had it down correctly, but in typesetting or whatever, something got changed. So she was able to get it fixed before it went to print. So in print now, e-version, everything is is correct. So just one of those quirky things. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's really cool, like, to be. And so this gets syndicated out. I'm in the greater Madison area. So then there's other papers that pick this, this article up. Um, now, 
Any of you, though, this paper, this article doesn't have any comments yet. So you could be the person to go into the Portage Daily Register and uh, read the article and leave a comment about, hey, this is a great article and Doc is a great guy. Um, so I'm going to put that link down here one more time. And uh, so you can find the article. Um, you have to click. I don't know. It kind of comes up. It tries... It tries to uh, get me to buy it. <laughs> Although, like, I'm already a subscriber of the newspaper, so if I go in my e-edition, then it's always it's always there. But here it is. Um, uh, there's the, the link to it. Um, so, yeah, if you want to go. Let me go and put that up as the, as the posted link. That's where you can read the article. And if you want, you can leave a comment. Um, apparently there, which, you know, nobody has done so far. So I think that'd be kind of a cool thing. No pressure, everybody. No pressure at all. Hey, welcome, Bacon. Um, Vanessa's saying is a horse-drawn canal system. Yeah, our canal system here was hand-dug, and we had a fort here, also military fort, 1824 to 1845. Um, initially, though, this was where the canal was for 10,000 years was used by Native Americans to um, transport um, canoes from the Fox River to the Wisconsin. And so, yeah, this was like a real, uh, a real active area um, for uh, several thousand years where I, where I live. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's cool. So remnants of, of the canal were preserved and, um, you can, again, from the library, you can just walk. On a nice day, it's awesome. Like, you can, I would go down to the library with a cup of coffee or a thing of coffee, right? I would read a book or, you know, work on whatever I was doing. They have a beautiful reading room, a fireplace there, a lot of sunlight. And then um, I would go out and I would, I would walk the levee. And there's like a two, three-mile walking trail right along the Wisconsin River. It's a paved trail. And... Uh, and then I'd walk it from one end to another, just a beautiful morning, right? And, you know, just come back and stuff like that. So you see, like, orbs are going by. So it's kind of a paranormal show. Apparently the ghosts are down here with me. Um, so, yeah. And, again, this, the velocity of information is out there. So please consider that in paperback. I mean, hard copies expensive. It's where they're putting it in libraries you know, because they, you know, want it to hold up. But it's an awesome book. Um, so let's, uh, I'm going to go to the chat and then, um, tell you about another quirky experience I had today before I get started. So, um, Vanessa is saying that, uh, undergrad subjects, independent study of fractals and chaos. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> I didn't have anything that cool when I was, maybe it was there. I just didn't take it. Um, so Vanessa, our neighboring school district, um, announced that they are now, um, they, they have elective classes for uh, juniors and seniors where you can obtain your firefighting certification. I think like firefighting one and two. So you could graduate high school and be able to work part-time as a firefighter or full-time. And I think it's a brilliant move for them to do that. I mean, one awesome skills to learn and you're ready for this in high school, right? You're ready for this at age 16, 17, 18 to pick this up. Um, 
and you know, so so it does that. Plus, it it helps uh, bolster the the roster of the local fire department there, which is it's a tourist community, so they definitely need to have people um, available for their their firefighting service. But I think it's awesome. I took my firefighter training when I was in college as college classes. And yeah, if, if it was available in high school, I certainly would have taken it in high school. So it's our good friend, Bacon Maldito out of uh, Inglewood. So uh, it's our toy town is here, our town and, and uh, state just passed a um, place to memorial this weekend for our Windsor Locks Canal Billers, the Irish immigrants. That's cool. That's cool. So our locks um, received a, a federal grant in and had additional um, preservation work done. So uh, there are trails that go along, along the locks as well as a bridge that was put in over um, the locks. So that's cool. Um, yeah, when we moved here, I mean, there wasn't much happening with that. It had just been abandoned for many, many years. They did take down a, I think it was like 170 um, year old grist mill that was on the locks when they built the um, the county building here. And that was maybe like five years ago, but that thing was still awesome. Um, and when they took it down, it was, they didn't demolish it. They had a company come in because the wood was pristine, right? You had these huge logs that were made, you know, were, were cut to make this. So as they peeled away the sides of this, you could see, I, I took pictures of it. Um, during the different processes of this man, you know, they dismantled this and then repurposed the wood. Uh, it was a incredible structure, but of course didn't have any practical use was, would, you know, and now it's the County building is, is there, but, um, that was along the, the canal. So, um, let's get to some new, yeah. <laughs> Woke choosing the orbs. Yeah. And some, in some videos, people point them out. <laughs> I'm like, it's highly paranormal down here at Zach studios. So I'm not sure what's up with that. Um, so, but yeah, sometimes you can see them, um, in videos, but everything's okay down here. Uh, so let's see here. Uh, Vanessa saying the canal still feeds water to the paper mill. It's the oldest in the country. They held the patent on, uh, tea bag paper, uh, during 1938. Uh, wow. Very cool. So, um, I also had an not I don't not an interesting experience, but so today I'm watching the um, the recycling truck go by because we put out our recycling and our garbage this week, and like next week it's garbage, and the following week it's garbage recycling. It's bins from the city, you know, or the county, I guess. And I'm watching this, and um, they come because as soon as they get done with it, I want to bring it in the garage, like as soon as it's empty. So they they go to our neighbors empty out theirs and they drive past our house and go to our other neighbors and they empty theirs. I'm like, why do we get skipped? <laughs> like, that's weird. I've lived here 20 years and we've been skipped once. Um, so this made it twice. So I went inside and then the truck just kept going. I went inside and uh, called the number for the County. And, and I said, Hey, like, you know, we were just skipped. And, and so this person in real time was talking on the phone to the, to the driver and the driver said, no, he stopped and pick your stuff up. And like, no, he didn't. <laughs> I went out there. It's like all in here. And I'm like, it's loose stuff too. There wasn't like some piece of big cardboard holding everything in where it didn't fall out. He uh, drove by. 
So she's like, oh, okay. Like he'll come back and get it. And two minutes later is back. And But I was just like, that was weird. I mean, what was up with that? That's something Zippy would do. So, um, yeah. So, yes. Um, things are going um, well here. It's just, it's cold. So I am uh, narrating the, not to velocity of information. I'm narrating uh, School of Airs. And I am about 20% done with it now. So I, I do that on Wednesdays and Fridays. I go into, there's a recording studio in my hometown. I'm very blessed, right, that it's only, you know, a mile away from where I'm at. And then um, I go into the, booth, into the booth and have an iPad and I just continue reading the book. So um, that will be done in, in May. We'll have that done. So I read for about a uh, hundred minutes or, you know, a little bit longer at a time. And it's not that smooth though, because so the audio engineer has the script and he's going line by line as I'm reading and he'll stop and say, Oh, like, okay, here you said this, but it actually is this, like I said, uh, instead of the or something. So we go back and we record it or else I'll mix up something and I'll say, okay, I have to start over. And it's interesting how quickly you learn. I was nervous. I'm still, I still am nervous. He's a great guy. And none of, you know, that's not intimidating. It's just, I'm not used to reading, um, you know, pages and pages and pages at a time. And so when you, when you read, like you're, you're typically not reading a book out loud, at least you're not reading, you know, 30 pages of a book out loud. So when you see a comma and a period and stuff like that, like where to take a pause, you do that mentally. Now, when you do an audio audio book, like that doesn't work that way. You have to go in and if you have a longer sentence, like you have to mark where you're going to take a breath. So to mark up a script is a pretty complex process, especially when you don't really know what you're doing <laughs> like me. So I had to learn it. And when we started narrating the book, or when I started narrating the book, I started in the middle because I knew I would get better as time went on. So then, you know, then middle and then kind of went back to the beginning and worked through. And, and I thought, well, in the middle, people probably wouldn't recognize that, I, you know, I wasn't quite as crisp and, I don't know, energetic with, with my presentation. I don't know. They would just think, oh, Doc is getting more serious at this point. So that's kind of worked out. But um but anyway, so I'm narrating, um, and the book will be distributed through Findaway Voices, um, hopefully. So when I narrate, like, I, I really hydrate like crazy, and I bring in a lot of water with me. So every 10 minutes, I'm taking a water break. Um, I also bring in um, Three Musketeers, the, the mini bite-sized bars. And the reason is, I didn't, so I'm talking to other, narr like, professional narrators, right? Friends of mine who, like, do this, and they said, you know, your glucose, your glucose levels, right? Your brain, when you're reading, that uh, if you're to do, you know, like a scan, there's a, just your brain is burning up calories as as you're reading. So you need to replenish that because your your basically blood sugar levels will drop the more you narrate, and that's true because like Einstein would do that. Like Einstein was eating sweets all the time because it was burning up the glucose. In, in his mind, in mind is would would just consume those things. So I bring in um, little candy bars. So then I'm 
I'm periodically doing a little candy bars plus water to keep that up. And, and I practice most nights I'll read for 40 minutes and then I will play it back and listen to it. Like what I'm going to read in the future. So it's, it's much harder than what I thought it was going to be. It's actually the hardest I think I've, I've done in like 10 years. <laughs> like I've presented on PBS for a live audience where you have to like hit exact timing and stuff like that. But that's fine. Like I don't, no problem on that. But I am like, I am just crazy. Um, it, w with this audio book is it is uh it's hard to do because it's so not my voice sounds good it's just i'm not used to doing that like so to so narrator it's a real skill you know, the velocity of information as a professional narrator but but still it's, it's, it's going to be really good when it comes out so that'll be out in uh, summer and available to libraries through findaway voices and audible and all of that type of stuff so anyway i'm looking forward to it my um graphic artists and I, uh, we, she rebuilt the, um, the cover a little bit because it wasn't showing up with a lot of contrast. So once the, the audio engineer started to render some of the files with the metadata, he said, Hey, like, you know, here's something you might want to consider because the original image had school of errors in red, um, on a blue background. And it, and, and of course, when you bring that up, like on your car, it's just, you know, those screens are good, but they're not as high def as like an iPad or something. So it kind of blended in a little bit. It wasn't easy to distinguish. So we changed it. So now it's white and I think it looks really cool, uh, but I'm going to wait a little bit, kind of just make sure I'm set with that. And I'm going to have that made up because I have wall art with my old version. I don't know what to do with, like I could sign it and give it to one of you. I could send it off to one of you. You could have the audiobook cover signed by the only one, the original version signed by me and Marker. So, um, but yeah, so I have a whole bunch of books like on their way to me, um, which is good. So, but um, yeah, so let me go again. Let me go through here. Um, so, uh, Vanessa is saying, all that skill and knowledge you are learning reading the book to audios. It is. I, I I don't have the ability to like be a professional narrator, but um, I am glad I went through this process of narrating my own book because one, it's kind of a legacy thing, right? Like it'll be out there forever for my kids or their grandkids or, you know, family or something. And I, I think I think that is important. Um, second is I learned a lot through this process, you know, how to work with a recording studio, um, what, how to mark up a manuscript for narration, which is, is complicated. It is, it's, it's not easy to do that. Um, how to, how to work with a distributor, how to work with Findaway Voices, which is awesome, by the way, Findaway Voices. So Findaway Voice, you have like ACX, which is Audible, you know, Amazon. Findaway Voices is another. Um, the reason I went, went with Findaway Voices is um, they distribute to libraries. I don't know why I'm losing my voice. I shouldn't. It's humidity. But um, Findaway Voices has been absolutely awesome to work with and was recommended to me by other um, narrators. So my book will still appear on Amazon or, yeah, Amazon Audible, all that. But with uh, Findaway Voices, it also shows up in libraries. So good thing, but yeah, how to work with Findaway Voices, how to to create the files, the metadata, all the stuff, how to get an ISBN for an audiobook, um, 
so much to go through, but again, I'm glad I did it. Like it's all been a good experience. And but it's so weird because yeah, the first session I'm sitting there, I'm just nervous, booth, you know, and making a lot of mistakes. And of course, the audio engineer is awesome. He, you know, he fixes all that stuff. And then you know, I got I progressively have improved, getting more comfortable with it. Um, but yeah. Anyway, it's kind of a cool thing. I always wanted the book to be out there, and having worked at the school for the blind in Wisconsin. One of the things I learned was it, to have a, a book available with um, with a text read out loud option versus like an audio book. There's no comparison. So my friends who are blind, like I asked them, I said, would, would this book be significantly better for you if it was available in audio, if I narrated or somebody else did? They said, yeah, obviously. <laughs> I'm like, okay, then I'm going to, you know, stick with it and make sure that it gets out there in audio format. So... Um, bacon singing. I read all of my books over a megaphone so my neighbors can enjoy my literacy choices, my literary choices. So sometimes the local police stop by. So that's one way to do it. Turn it up. So, wow. Um, Zippy's saying, done send uh, me new books. I'm uh, raw on them. Need it in text format so I can. Zippy, I'll take care of you. Don't worry about it, buddy. I got the right format for you. So, um, no problem, buddy. Uh, Vanessa. So yeah, come on. Zippy's a good guy. That's funny. Um, if you do book signing, I'm going to... I appreciate that, Vanessa. So I don't know. I mean, it kind of got... I was... So it was a weird thing. Like in early, very, I don't know, like January, right? December, January. When we start to look ahead at, at maybe setting up some book things. It was right at that time. Things start to shut down again because of the pandemic. So to make any uh, to get anybody to make a commitment to say, oh yeah, like you can be here on April eighth or you know May second or something um, to speak was they weren't going to do it because they're like we don't know we might not be open if it's a library or university or bookstore or something so or we're not going to have you know people coming in we we don't know what our restrictions will be for number of people so. So that kind of threw a wrench in things. And now it's a little late to fix some of that. So I don't know what I'm going to do. It doesn't matter too much because the book will get out there, you know, through media, through, uh, you know, things like that. Um, be a guest on a number of, of shows. People I've interviewed and the book will, you know, amplify it. But um, I don't know. I don't know if I'll be doing like the road trip signing. And there might be, you know, ironically, like it might happen down the road which won't be like this year. It could be next year. Maybe it'd be like a dual thing of like School of Airs plus that. Because the audiobooks, my School of Airs releases this year in summer, but Velocity of Information doesn't release till next April. So there could be kind of this tie-in. And I don't know. I mean, we'll have to see. Um, but I mean, it would be awesome, Vanessa. It completely would. It's just things got so screwed up with... Um, trying to predict anything out and make uh, commitments on book signing. But um, Toy Town saying, I got a $10 donation for signed audiobook cover. I'll do 20, but uh, times are tough, so no negotiation. So, well, Toy Town, are you saying you want to buy that? Um, it's a one by one foot. Um, I can, I'll show you the image. I'll, I won't. Uh, let's just do that so you know what you're going to get. And it would be, I'll probably sign it on, I could sign it on the front or back. If I send it on the front, 
I'm not sure how that would look in marker. On the back, the back of it is white, so like it would look really cool to have my signature and the date and the location. But let me do this. Let me show you what is going up for. <laughs> um, so it's been in my office right now. Why? What in the world here? So bring up all my files. Um, so what? Yeah, here it is. Cover art. Final cover. Whoa. It's not, it's not even the right. So I'm looking for the current book. I have to go back and look for School of Errors. So School of Errors was my first book. Um, here. Here we go. Audiobook cover art. Okay. Boom. All right. It's weird. Okay. So let me do this. Share screen. I have to bring in the extra ca uh, camera sometime. There's an option now to do that. Okay. So this um, toy town, that's, that's the, uh, that's the cover of, uh, so it's, that is a foot, a one foot by one foot um, plaque. So it's about uh, a little more than a half inch of a foam board with a hard cover. It's really well made. Um, it's up on my wall. That's exactly what it is. Um, but the cover, the official cover is the School of Errors thing is going to be in white. So this I'm not going to have anymore. So I'm going to take that off my wall. Um, but yes, I would be willing if anybody... I don't think it would be that much to send domestically if I package that thing up either, um, but it's up to you. I'd be glad to sign the back of it to, uh, yeah, sign it in marker, the date, the location, all of that you could put up, up on your wall. This would be a one of a kind because this is the audiobook cover for School of Errors, the original that has will be changed now. This is a one-time thing. So... <clears throat> On, uh, on what is that, Roadshow's Antique or whatever thing. So, whoa, there's my show notes. Um, yeah, the, you know, like 100 years from now, that thing will be worth money. The, uh, that'll, that'll be bank. So, um, yeah. So, Vanessa's saying, I can send you audiobooks. I apologize. Oh, yeah. So, um, I... I like listening to audiobooks, so I'm glad both of my books will be in audio format. And uh, I mean, just flat out, right? It's just it's, <laughs> so um, I've been told. So I've shared like three chapters of my current book with a few reviewers, and it's not like I'm going to re-record anything. I mean, the, the engineer's gone through and stuff like this and put it together. I'm just like, is this good? Because I, I typically don't perceive myself as a book narrator, but they're like, no, it's good. Like, it sounds good. We can, you know, feel your passion for the work and, and it's entertaining and it's like, good. And I think I'm getting better as it, as it goes on. Um, reading is not super bad, just to get fatigued from it. Uh, so that's one thing, like reading off of an iPad for almost two hours, there's a fatigue factor in that. You start to lose your place a little bit and just like sitting and so, like, you know, I got to get out of the booth, you know, water and like candy bar and stuff like that and just kind of move around. And But there is a certain point. I think when your your mind just gets filled and you start to pattern or see things that aren't there in the text and and, um, and you're just not as precise. So definitely I'm much more 
precise early on than I am toward the end. Even like if it's a a page that we're trying to finish and if I'm kind of spent, it's just really difficult to, to do that. So sign, yeah, I could. I'd have to figure out where to get a silver Sharpie. Um, I, so yeah, we might have one. My kids might have one, but it would look cool signed. I do it in my cool signature too on the front of it, sign across it. And, uh, and no, it, it, I, I didn't think about that when I looked at it, like to sign straight across it in a silver Sharpie would be a really cool effect. Um, so yeah. Um, Heath is saying change the setting to orange. So change it to something, right? So it, it has been changed to, um, white. And so screen, the screen to orange. Okay. Oh, okay. The screen to orange. Sorry about that. Oh, okay. On the iPad. Yeah. Um, okay. I know I'm not that skilled on the iPad. So I had my 10 year old, or I should say my 11 year old daughter set this up. <laughs> I'm like, I need this PDF and I need to be able to like access it. So I just open it up and stuff. And I like a, kind of a brighter screen in contrast. And I think though, you know, just like with your voice, and I think it's not even so much reading the text as it is your mind, you um, kind of gets full, at least for me with reading. And, and also like, I know the content, right? Like, so I, I take a little bit of shortcuts. Like I kind of go, like I'm talking to an audience about it, but you can't do that in a, when you're narrating it has to be word by word. Anyway, it's going, it's going well, like I'm improving, it's getting much better and it's exciting to get to this point where it's like, whoa, like this audiobook is going to be out and I narrated it. So, um, you know, first narrator credits, but so yeah, uh, reduce. I, yeah, no, I got Heath, you're, you're right on. And that was one of the reasons why I, I use our, our newest iPad because it has a really high contrast level, which helps me when reading. I, I benefit from a lot of contrast. So yeah, um, I, I would, <laughs> I would love, man, I would love if I had a 40 inch monitor in front of me to read off of. Uh, so like when I'm narrating, like I did a, I did a conference keynote and I was able to just look down range and there's you know, multiple cameras on me and stuff and everything was coming up on a, all, all my notes and stuff were coming up on a, a display board, which was like 12 by 12 foot or something. So I could see it, but no one else could. So it was like super easy for me. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah. So, um, so that, so those are, you know, kind of things going on here. And so crisis versus chaos, let's get into that. Um, what is crisis versus chaos? First of all, we have, a. Uh, we have 15 um, thumbs up, so I appreciate that. So thank you very much, crisis versus chaos. These are terms that people tend to um, weave together or use them as, I guess, the same term, right? And crisis and chaos are two different things. So, um, but before we get into that, let's do this.
All right, so we just brought the show title. I was trying to do like, there's an audio part that could go back with that, but it didn't work. So <laughs> still learning. Um, okay, crisis versus chaos. So I'm going to read, my notes are over here on the left. And at some point I'm going to go through and, and read a, a couple chapters out of uh, uh, the velocity of information. But people think crisis and chaos, just if you stop people, right, person on the street, what is crisis, what is chaos? And you kind of like put all those definitions together that people come up with. They're pretty much the same. Um, a disaster, like a tense situation, things are going wrong. But uh, the truth is crisis is different than chaos, okay? So let's get into that right off the bat here. What is crisis? Okay, crisis implies a decisive point in a dangerous situation with anticipation of an abrupt change to the condition for better or for worse. Okay, so something is going to change quickly and it's going to either like resolve itself or it's going to get worse. So typically in chaos, you don't think things are going to get better. You think it's going to get worse. But so in a crisis, um, situation, it's like, okay, this is either going to, they're going to rescue the person or the person is going to fall off of the cliff, right? One of the two. So it's either going to get much worse or it's going to get much better quickly. That's the first thing. Um, so crisis, 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 A, crisis is often of short duration and will have identifiable turning points. So it's rare to have a crisis which lasts for days or weeks or months. So if you say like um, climate crisis, you'd almost be saying climate chaos at that point. Um, but anyway, um, it's of short duration. Most crisis events are short duration. Uh, might be minutes, right? Hours or something like that crisis. And it has an identifiable turning point. Um, Again, you know, a crisis. Will a dam hold or will it fail during a flood? So you're like, okay, we don't know. We're going to watch in the water. And eventually, you know, at some point, you know, 20 hours in, the water starts to go down or the dam holds and everything. You're like, okay, this is the turning point. We're beyond the crisis situation. So um, it tends to be scale in a predictable, ma predictable manner. So, again, crisis um, situation you would expect, you, you could kind of predict where it's going to go. Again, let's use that example of a flood. Um, so as, as the water would increase, you could you could have some reasonable expectation of here's what's going to happen next. Either, yeah, a dam or levees or things like that will hold, or if they do fail or whatever, or hurricane or things like that. Um, so you have some predictability in this, which you're going to be pretty close on. Things aren't going to go all haywire in a in a crisis you're going to have that pretty well figured out um people believe their own actions might resolve a crisis so this is probably the biggest thing so if i tell you right that um you know in the next 60 minutes boom there was a meteor de detected it's coming straight at us S straight at us heath uh, zippy um and you'd be like, whoa. Um, so there's not much you can do. So that would be considered a chaos situation. 
crisis, you're thinking if we do these things, right? A crisis situation, if we, if we take XYZ measures, we can end the crisis. We can lessen the crisis. We, we can divert the crisis. The missile Cuban, you know, crisis going back in the, into the 60s, right? If we do these different diplomatic measures, we can resolve this crisis. So a crisis is something you believe your interventions can resolve it, either as an individual or as a government or whatever, but your interventions can resolve it. So that, again, that's really a key distinction. While people believe they can negotiate to resolve a crisis, the mindset faced when in chaos is to survive or wait it out. So it's a big difference right there. If you have a chaos event, you know, so like a this this meteor is going to hit Earth, and and uh, at that point you're in a chaos mode, right? It's basically what can I do to try to survive this or to wait it out? There's nothing you can do at that point that's going to uh, divert that situation. So you're no longer in crisis; you're immediately into chaos. So. Remember, one of the big things, crisis, short-term, you believe you can do something that would resolve it, um, that there can be a decision made to that resolve it, or either the situation itself. Think of that dam, the water's rising. Either the dam's going to hold, and everything's going to be fine, or the dam will fail, and then not. The, the, one or, you know, so there's this definite point that's happening in crisis. But most people, like, you can, there's a thought at least, it might be, not, it might not be realistic, but there's a thought that you can intervene. Now, you know, if you're watching the sky light up and you, you're literally minutes away from, you know, a meteor hitting the earth, it's no longer a crisis. It's not, it never has been a crisis situation. Then it's chaos. What can I do to try to last this out, like to wait it out? So kind of a difference there. Crisis, humans think they can solve it, right? Um, they can divert it. Chaos, not so much. So let's go into chaos. What is chaos? So chaos is a state of disorder that is amorphous and without a and without clear turning points. So once things get into chaos, right? So if we did have a, an earthquake or whatever, a meteor or something like that happened, a nuclear war, right? <laughs> oh my goodness. But um, it would, you, you wouldn't know what was going to happen next, what was going to scale next. It wouldn't scale in a linear fashion, be very nonlinear. Um, there wouldn't be clear turning points. Like where are we at now? Is it done? Is it over? Is the next, I mean, it, you know, so all of these, it, it would be very difficult to figure out. So chaos is, is very unorganized, very, you can't predict where things are going to go next, but chaos gradually uh, quickly or gradually settles into outcome basins or creates a new mean. So like chaos, chaos eventually, you know, whether that be an, an hour or in days or weeks or whatever, but it settles down. And then you're like, you might still be in chaos. It might be a world that is, you know, 300 degrees outside and you're having to live in your basement until, you know, this whatever with the meteor and you might still have a slim chance of survival. Right. But, um, the, but it has, it's not getting any worse, right? The chaos is kind of settling down somewhat. Nothing you can do will change the chaotic event outside. You just have to outlive it. So chaos describes a system that will develop in unpredictable ways and will not scale lin linearly. 
Um, it exists on a continuum with degrees of absorption by sim uh, systems. So that also means, um, you know, like your your the, the ability to get resources out to people, the ability to have your water running, stuff like that. How will these systems continue to operate? And some of these systems might be pretty robust. Maybe they'll keep going or delivery of food to stores or something. Who knows? I mean, no one, but there, we, you don't know these, how these systems or just these humanity systems, communication systems will be able to absorb these things. So let's say there's an electromagnetic storm from the sun that hits the earth. How will the satellite and communication systems handle that? So different degrees of whether they'll be able to handle that or, or there'll be certain parts they'll be able to handle, certain parts they won't. We don't know. A state of chaos due to a lack of or impossibility of a scripted response will usually, if not inevitably spread. Chaos, again, think of, again, earthquake, meteor, stuff like this, kind of rapid answers. Um, you do, it, it, it's not going to be localized. It continues to kind of, it, it spreads out. Chaos affects the global consciousness, even if only temporarily. So, right. The 2011 um, earthquake and tsunami near Japan was a chaos event, chaos event, right, that killed 15,899 people and caused the Fukushima nuclear energy plant disaster. So, back 11 years ago, when that um, happened, the earthquake and then the, the tsunami, that was chaos. There's nothing anybody could do to counter the tsunami, right? It's not a crisis situation. You can't jump in and stop the earthquake. You can't stop the tsunami. Um, you have to live it out. You have to ride it out. So you have to ride out the chaos situation. So it's chaos. You have to ride out chaos. And then eventually, right, it settles in. The, the earthquake had a lot of after tremors, but eventually it settles down, right? So it's an outcome basin that you're in, it settles down. And then um, the nuclear um, energy plant, um, you know, disaster that was happening eventually, that settles down, right? So you do get this outcome basin, which is in, in chaos. Um, but there's nothing, again, that you could do individually or collectively to counter that. There was no point in a crisis thing, a crisis situation or condition where you could make decisions to avert the earthquake, right? There was nothing. You can't negotiate with the earthquake. Here, earthquake, I'll give you this, this signed 12 by 12 um, audiobook cover that Doc had for School of Errors. So I know that somebody already spoke for it, but um, if you give this to us, we will, uh, we'll be good. So was that, that, was that you, Heath? I think it might've been. Um, if that's the case, I gotta I gotta trade it because if it prevents a uh, earthquake, I gotta do it. So, um, yeah, let's go back. So, so two things: crisis and chaos are not synonymous. Crisis, there's the potential to make a choice, right, as an individual or as a government or whatever, to avert the crisis, or um, just that the the structures in place the the either it, something will happen or not either the dam will hold or it will fail it's a crisis situation um chaos is that anything that you do isn't going to make a difference right so right the meteor hits and the atmosphere is 300 degrees for a week you're down in your cellar surviving you just have to outlast it 
And you don't know what's going to happen next. What systems are going to still maintain, um, you know, if you'll still be able to get water, things like that. I don't know. But um, so, so that's the thing. You have a decision you can make typically in crisis. You don't have a decision in chaos. You just have to outlive the event. You have to survive whatever's happening in chaos, which can happen in our lives sometimes too, right? You know, I mean, horrific things happen. Um, you know, somebody has, you know, dies um, of, of uh, cancer or, or, you know, a car accident or, 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 or you know, something, and, and it, it creates a chaos situation. I guess especially if it's acute, right, if it's short-term, it creates a chaos situation. And then, you know, you have to live through that, as painful as that is, to try to, to get your footing and get to this outcome base and then, then move forward. There's nothing you can do to to change that, right? You can't bring this person back or, you know, again, they had, had a stroke or a heart attack. There's nothing you could have done in that moment to intervene with that. Um, so that is, you know, I think it's it's something to underline to people is people try to apply crisis thinking to chaos. They tried, while they're in chaos, they try to keep dealing out the deck or they try to flip the cards at the top hat and try to get them in of saying, I can still solve this. I'm still, I'm above this. I have more powers than chaos. And the reality is you don't. And you're, you're wasting time. You're giving false hope to yourself and to others when you just have to get through that. You have to go into survival mode. You have to make your decisions of saying, I need to, I'm in this outcome basin of chaos. I need to continue to get through this. As chaos exists and as chaos will dampen out eventually, it'll kind of regress to the mean. I need to be there on the other side of it. So, so that's a big thing. And if you can recognize that in other people I, um, and tell them, you know, that that's what's happening because people don't identify this, right? When it's happening in real time, they don't, they don't see that. So you can be an asset to them and say, you're, here's the difference between crisis and chaos. And as I see things, I, as I observe things, you are in a chaos situation right now. Um, and, and so don't try to, to fix or to solve things, right? Um, they can't be fixed or solved. Like, again, you know, somebody, somebody dies of a heart attack or a car accident. There's nothing you can do at that point um, for crisis. You're in chaos. You have to let the time pass and the outcome basin to settle and then to move on. But people, you know, think, well, if I would have only done this or if I could do this now or if I could do this, it's like it doesn't, it doesn't, once you're in chaos, crisis thinking doesn't help you in chaos. Um, so let's go over to the chat. Hopefully that helped. Um, let me know. So order and without order. Yeah. And chaos is the natural state, right? Entropy. Everything tries to go back to a disordered state. Um, order is actually the unnatural state. But um, Zippy is saying, order is an illusion. It's just events that become the average. Chaos is norm. You're right. Yep. And when I wrote about um, uh, Robert Travis, the Alaskan crab boat um, deckhand in Philosophy of Information, you know, he talks about, hey, you know, like the, the boat, right? the boat would always ice over. You, you would get, you know, several inches of ice and you'd have to go there with sledgehammers for hours and hours to knock this stuff off because 
that was just a natural condition. That was the entropy of having a boat in the Bering Sea. And if you got too much ice, the boat would become too heavy and it would sink. And that actually happened, right? A couple of years ago to, to a crab boat. Um, so, right. You know, we, we tend to, it was just like our bodies, right? Like if we exercise, we can fight off entropy to some extent. Uh, but if we don't exercise and as we age, our bodies decay, um, which is, I mean, just a vehicle, right? A vehicle. You can extend um, preservation, you know, through keeping it clean and salt off of it and stuff like that. But everything has entropy, which impacts it. So, um, and I, I think as I read, you know, uh, numerous uh, studies and articles and talked to people uh, as I put the philosophy of information together, I think the philosophy of information is a, is a great book for understanding especially I explicitly get into it later in the book, but crisis and chaos. And as you know, the events of the last two years, what is a crisis and what is a, what is chaos? What can you control? What can't you control? And if you try to impose control over something you can't control, everybody woke up in March of 2020 deemed essential or non-essential. You didn't, you couldn't control that. Um, and it didn't make any sense to try to put efforts into trying to control that. Who are you going to, what are you going to do? Try to contact you know, the president or your governor? Or, I mean, it just wasn't going to be there. So it kind of throws you into a chaos situation. So then how do you navigate within that chaos situation? So, um, and, and I think it, it makes people um, languish. It makes people uh, depressed. It makes people feel powerless when they try to, um, make decisions in, in a chaos situation that they think will end the chaos and it just won't. So, um, he, uh, Bacon said, if I found out a meteor was coming in the next 10 minutes, I'm chugging all of my EDC. Yes. Bacon. Oh my goodness. Yeah. There was that movie. Um, I don't know. Was it, I don't know what the name of it was. Um, Stephen Colbert was in it, but it was a meteor that was going to strike earth. And I think there was something like 10 days notice. Basically, it was nothing that anybody could do, and it was made public. So then this whole movie is about that. It came out maybe 10, 15 years ago um, of just how, yeah, society reacted to that. Again, in a movie perspective. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Um, but I, I think right now people try – People mix up, um, they they don't interpret chaos correctly. They interpret it still as a crisis situation. We saw it on 9-11 in the Twin Towers, people staying, um, you know, at their desk, saving files, um, kind of this normalcy bias, right? Of, no, this isn't as bad as, as you know, whatever. And um, so normalcy bias maybe, you know, tends to, drift people back to crisis where they think their decisions can change something. But to, you have to authentically like recognize when you are in chaos and what that means. Um, so it's our good friend, all pro lemon Welcome buddy. I got my bike serviced this week tuned up, um, but I can't ride because it's like only 40 degrees here and raining sucks. Andrew, there's going to be a lot of uh, Democrat voters if a meteor takes earth out. So, Oh my goodness, Andrew. Uh, Zippy, bacon. How the world is ending? I'd be more like about time. Goes back to playing a Souls game. Oh my goodness, Zippy! Come on, buddy. Heath, 
that is, uh, this is that, then this is in sequence. Yes, you got it. Uh, Zippy, systems are made by humans that don't live in the real world. Thus, people on the ground feel their way out of the worst of chaos. Um, look at 9-11. Yes. Um, and let me go down here. Um, Vanessa, uh, Zippy wrote to Vanessa, looking at nature is more like averages, while chaos is um, more everything. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's perspective uh, because we tend to view chaos, right? As humans of a, you know, we have a, what, a, you know, life lifetime of what, 80 years on this, this planet. So um, we see a very small sliver of something and, you know, say it's chaos. So um, I'll prolong time. I heard a guy who was in Tower 2 said people are still working after Tower 1. That's true. I wrote about it in my book, um, School of Airs. There are a few chapters on 9-11 um, and the Twin Towers. And yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Uh, document it that people are still saving files uh, before they would leave the building. And uh, several hundred people um, who spent their time doing you know stuff like that. So part of that is normalcy bias, right? Like thinking, oh, like here's another drill. And usually with the drills, we just have to go to the hallway and then they'll tell us, oh, it's done and you can come back. So I'm going to save my files. Or just people possibly thinking or, or struck with the, with the overwhelming reality of, you know, I, I see flaming you know, debris outside my window. And this, I don't know what to do this. I never expected this. And, and, uh, you know, they just kind of freeze. So I wrote about it extensively and very clearly in, um, school of errors. So that, uh, that's out there. Um, let's go and talk about a couple other things. So we have chaos in crisis. So, um, you know, that they're different, right? Let's talk about harder, soft bifurcations. So it's kind of crazy stuff. What is a bifurcation? So if you think about it, a bifurcation is kind of just like a turning point. It's when something happens. So there's a parameter. So let, let, here's, an, here's an easy bifurcation, right? 30 de 32 degrees Fahrenheit is the bifurcation for melting. So, right, if you have water, it freezes. And below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, it's going to be ice. At 32 degrees Fahrenheit, it is going to now transition into a liquid in typical situations, right? So that's a bifurcation point. And it, bifurcation can also be stress points, right? If you have a, a boat, right? <laughs> the Titanic, there's a, there's a bifurcation, there's a stress point of how much the panels can take on the side of the boat uh, pressure before they give way or you know any, any other structure or a house being hit by a tornado or something like that. So um, yeah, there's a bifurcation point of when something will give way. So let me read this uh, for you. So a crisis can be characterized by a bifurcation, which is a parameter independent change in dynamic behavior. So again, just think about temperature. Temperature. Um, a useful distinction exists between hard, abrupt, and soft, gradual bifurcations. So Hard bifurcation, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example here in just a second, and soft, gradual. Here's an example of a hard bifurcation. The ice on a lake slowly warms. So we have lakes around us, and uh, they were still ice covered up until like a week ago, but high bar for, high, hard bifurcation. The ice on a lake slowly warms. 
and temperature is the bifurcation parameter. Remember, 32 degrees, da, 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 temperature, um, ice turns to liquid. Okay, so hard bifurcation, the ice on a lake slowly warms and suddenly breaks, dropping you into a cold lake. That is a hard bifurcation, right? So you're on the ice, ice warms, you're dropped into a lake. That's not gradual. <clears throat> I don't know why I'm losing my voice, but um, that happens quickly. And boom, it's done. So sometimes a hard bifurcation can be really good, right? It's when people are 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 on the fence, like maybe this is going to get better, maybe this isn't. It's like, no, <laughs> it definitely is going to get bad or it's definitely better. But a hard bifurcation, um, I, I think, makes it very clear. One of the things about chaos is the more chaos you have, the fewer decisions you have to make. For example, you know, if you're inside of a, a building, you're, you're inside of a grocery store and there's an earthquake, um, your decisions aren't what type of Pop-Tart should I have? Your decision is um, where's the closest exit? How can I get to it? Like, that's it. <laughs> so your, your decisions simplify as chaos amplifies. So hard bifurcation, and sometimes a hard bifurcation just makes it black and white for people. There's no discussion, right, on did this really happen or not. So that's like, you know, if you have a tornado hit an area, an earthquake or things like that, a, a um, hurricane, things like that, um, that is a high, hard bifurcation for the area. It has significantly, you know, changed it, right? Uh, you can have a hard bifurcation happen in your life, right? Those type of things can happen. Um, sometimes, you know, personally, I think a hard bifurcation is more preferable because it's a distinct marker that people can identify and then you can change your behavior from there moving, moving forward. So like if you fall into a lake here, this could be a bad thing. I mean, maybe you don't survive, I don't know. But um, but it's, so let's change this. So a soft bifurcation, think of an ice cube. Put an ice cube into a drink, it, once it gets to 32 degrees, the ice cube is going to start melting. Um, so, it's gradual, right? Ice cube doesn't immediately melt at 32 degrees. It just starts to melt away. So maybe over the next hour, it's eventually gone. So if you have a soft bifurcation, the uh, impacts are dispersed over time, right? Let's think about inflation right now. If the gas prices had gone from 250 to $5 over three years, you know, it would, it would, you know, uh, it would suck, right? You'd be like, oh God, gas prices are going up. But that's that's a soft bifurcation. It's gradual. You, you There's adjustments that you're kind of making going along the way. It's, I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it's now a hard bifurcation is, you know, from January 1st to April 1st, if gas prices have doubled, that's a hard bifurcation. Like that is a sudden change in the, the system. And I guess then the uh, the parameter would be economic inflation on that. So I wrote about this in Philosophy of Information with the Weirmer Republic and how um, people get paid twice a day because money, hyperinflation was so crazy, you know, pay for a loaf of bread with a wheelbarrow full of money. Um, so there'll be people that'll argue and say a soft bifurcation is clear, clearly preferable so let's think about this right now with gas prices and inflation. So would it really be preferable? I don't 
I would argue it wouldn't be preferable in because of this. I think people now are like, this is crazy, right? That in three months we've had prices skyrocket on fuel, on food, insurance, and all these other things have gone up. I think that calls people to action, right? And more of a crisis mode of saying, we can do things like our politicians or we can vote or things like this to, to change things. I think if it's a soft bifurcation, I think if you spread this out over three years and you have you know the same amount of inflation and even though it'll still be higher, but you spread it out over a longer period of time, then I think people aren't going to respond as much, right? They're not going to be happy, but they're going to be like, well, you know, um, it is what it is, and and, and you're not going to you're not going to change things because people aren't going to run for political office, right? Or or put pressure on people to change things. So, um, so I I think there's this whole argument to be made of the value of a hard bifurcation versus a soft. I think hard is clear; people understand it, like you know, but soft spread over time. Yes. Like maybe it doesn't impact people as much, um, all at once, but at the same time, I think it, it then it's, uh, hard for people to track it and, and people just kind of adjust to it. And, uh, even so like if you're doing something bad to people <laughs> as a government or, or whatever, and I'm not, I'm just saying if it's done gradually, people aren't going to pick up on it as much and re respond to it. If, if it's all of a sudden, Right. So, you know, if you increase my property taxes 8% a year versus, you know, 30% a year, I'm going to take notice of that. Let's go over to the chat. So, um, so uh, bifurcation means an entity is split into two. An example would be civil war. Well, true. Uh, I mean, it's like that's one take right on bif bifurcation. Um, uh, you got it. Uh, Zippy, um, sounds like branching one event that can go into different directions. So, um, yep. Um, so, whoa, got it right there. So I now have a new word to add to my vocabulary. Great, Heath. Actually, you know, so I'll be honest. I didn't, I knew about bifurcation, but I didn't know enough to write about it until I started writing my book and talk to people who are very versed in bifurcation and, and uh, strange attractors, which we'll get into next. But this makes sense, right? Um, you know, everything has a a point, a tipping point, kind of this bifurcation point. And so, if we ice is a good example, like again, you're you're like where I'm at in Wisconsin, you're out on a lake, you're you know ice fishing, and you know there's but there's a point where that that temperature will heat up and that ice will transition to liquid, and if you're you're there, you'll fall through, right? Boom. But, you know, think about it in a different term, though, like ice cube and a drink. And over an hour or two, if it's cooling the drink, it's a slower bifurcation. It's like, well, it's kind of works out. It's what it's supposed to do. But um, so, hey, we got our good friend Sass, one too many in the house. So welcome to Sass. And uh, Sass was doing the uh, cannonball runs back before the gas prices went crazy. So back when gas was 78 cents a gallon, he was going 178 miles an hour. So welcome, Sast. So, oh my goodness, bifurcation. The division of something into wow. Now we're getting into big. You guys are whamming me with the definition stuff. So yes, and again, this is how I applied it, kind of in in the context of the book. So, um, 
Heath, I know what it means because of bleach and start telling those. Oh, my goodness. Whoa, Bacon. Wow, Bacon is choosing an angry tone here tonight. But take care, buddy. You need to get to the Dismore's IGA. Get some of those chicken tenders. Um, Sippy, um, to Bacon. Uh, you know it all. It just sounds like an overly wordy word for branches past. I'll only bring it. Yeah. So the book doesn't get really technical, but I wanted to introduce a few things to people. And again, that I became more comfortable and familiar with because I think um, there's when I was interviewed this week or last week for my my book, and you know I'm sitting down with the, the reporter, right? And I one of the things she was asking, like, why do you, why did you do this? And I said. Uh, you know, what motivates you to do the book and things? And I said, you know, in the, I won, right? It was an in vivo experience. I recognized early on in the pandemic, if I could start documenting what was happening, this was likely going to be a long-term cast event. I could like get it down. I wouldn't have to like look back on it. I could get it in the moment. But I said also like me being here today, donating two hard copies, signed hard copies to the library, I said, it's important to demonstrate scholarly work and to share it with a community. And I didn't mean that to be, uh, and, you know, so when it's in, quoted in the article, um, I wish I would have given a little more context for that. It's not like I can do this and you can't do this. That's not what I was meant. That's not what I meant to do. Um, but it's like, you know, we can, we can contribute scholarly works we can do intellectual things um, and and then have other people benefit from that. And it might be like, you know, somebody's offering out to you know, teach a course like in rope knot tying or something like that. I mean, that, these intellectual, it's giving back. It's, it's um, putting something into the community, injecting something into the community. These two books and my other books, right, that people can read and maybe have different ways to obtain perspectives on things, or maybe this will help them at some point when they have to interface with crisis or chaos, or when they're getting information, which I don't think might be accurate. How can you help to ring um, intelligence from information? So it's like, that's what I wanted to do, right? Is to, to put this out there <laughs> to help other people and, and not only help them, but to, to maybe validate or to have them um, interface at a, at a different intellectual thinking, right? So, you know, you're not tuning into just some show on TV with this. Like, you're really getting into it. So that's what I was trying to convey. Scholarly works, I think, need to be recognized, whether it be me or somebody else um, doing those, especially now, because we, we just are not into that as a society as much, right? <laughs> I mean, really, like, when, you know, when all these people, you know, have YouTube, you know, channels or they do crazy things are America's got talent now, which used to be like singing and stuff like that. And now it's like, Oh, someone is going to jump over, you know, a car that's driving 120 miles out an hour at them. And they, you know, uh, parkour or something like that. I'm like, um, you know, it's, it's impressive. Right. But I'm like, that doesn't contribute to the scholar knowledge base. That's entertainment. And I wanted to, to make sure in the article to and conveying this, this isn't entertainment. This is a scholarly contribution and entertainment is fine, but that's not what this is. This is a scholarly contribution. Um, and I want people to see that. And I want people to kind of strive for that. I want people to read this and I want them to say, Hey, like, you know, crisis is different than chaos because, and, and if, you know, the worst, the worst time in your life, right. I mean, like in 
School of Errors, the first chapter is how thinking about a bagel can get you through the worst day of your life. And to understand the difference between crisis and chaos um, when it impacts you or impacts somebody you care about. And these bifurcations, right, um, that everything kind of has this breaking point. But, you know, sometimes it's a breaking point. Sometimes it's a bending point. Think of a piece of metal, right? <laughs> it might just not shear off. It might just bend. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's better, in my opinion, if things just snap, right? It, the bifurcation point hits versus like this gradual. It's maybe it's like telling people like bad news or something like that or whatever, or like, you know, when your kids eventually need to leave the house and go out on their own and get a job, like there needs to be like a, I think a hard bifurcation point to some extent to kind of set that and move things forward. Um, so here's something else. I, I'm going to talk about strange attractors, but first let me go over to the chat. Um, CT designs, uh, doc raising the IQs, a collective YouTube world. I just destroy IQs by making people watch things that, uh, like congressional hearings. Oh my God. Congressional hearings. Yikes. I remember C-SPAN, right? <laughs> they used to be popular for a while. So, oh my God, that's funny. Um, well, I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm sharing things that I learned. Like, honestly, it's, it's, I go back and 10 years ago, when I was 40, I didn't know half the stuff that I know now. And I know this stuff largely from my own endeavors, like writing books, presenting on PBS, you know, my PhD um, work. I was able to learn a lot, but, um, but a lot of it's just through personal inquiry and, and meeting with people, right? And talking to people. Um, hey, it's Red Crusader from Ohio. Hola, my good friend in Ohio. Some bad news for you, Red. Cold weather's headed your way. I'm sending it from Wisconsin. We had a really weird day. It was like 63 and like kind of felt springish and all that. And then it got real windy and that dropped to like 40. And now like the next 10 days will be 40 degrees and rainy. But we'll get there, Red. I'll let you know as soon as the warm weather hits so you can be looking out for it on the horizon as it comes in. It's going to be like two weeks, though. Heath, um, CT designs, politicians will lower everyone's IQ. Yeah. It's, it's, isn't it crazy? Like the older I get, the more just politicians and systems, you're just like, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> like, I'm not sure you're, you're, I'm not only not sure you're accurate. I know you're not accurate and it's just crazy. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it's, it's strange. Um, but by the way, two weeks from tomorrow is the election here, and I will, I will either be voted to city council or or I won't be. So that is the election going on. So I don't know. Uh, Saturday we have a uh, community get to know the candidates event um, from eleven to two that I'll be at. So we'll see how things things go. Um, I hope things go well. But I said we have two. Uh, I'm opposed in the position, of course, I'm running for here. So if that candidate wins, um, they'll do a good job. And uh, so either way, but uh, I'm hoping in two weeks, uh, things turn out favorably for me with that. So um, Zippy's saying, I can't maths, but everything comes down to math. Physics is causality and physics is strange things. So yeah. And I think this is important 
I mean, right. Like people sometimes approach me and say, Oh, you're too linear. Like you're too black and white on this stuff. It's too, you're too objective. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. Like, and I almost and now they kind of come up and say like, you're almost kind of too disagreeable on this stuff. Not in really a bad way, but just saying it's kind of, you know, where, where you look at things. And I say, but I, I think I'm so much more informed. Like I f- just feel more cognitively um, engaged with what's happening around me than I've ever felt in my life. Um, and I don't think it's a bad thing. Red, it was almost like summer here. Safety. I'm not so, <laughs> mother nature. Well, good for you, buddy. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Ohio, you know, it's going to happen. Like you're going to keep that warmth. I, We've had one day where it's felt like summer and the rest here, it's just, it's not so. And w- tonight, literally on the news, the uh, weather guy said 10 days of below normal and rain. But I, actually, it's okay for me. I don't have anything I have to do um, outside, like my property. Um, I'm just kind of recording, you know, with uh, the studio, the book. So it's not like... I'm missing out on a lot of great things I'd be doing otherwise. <laughs> so that's one. And two, like I got my bike, you know, tuned up and took it in yesterday and, and I got, yeah, got it back. And uh, so I'm ready to go, but um, it's okay. Like here's time I can kind of catch up and, and do some other, other things. But uh, so, yeah, let's see here. This is a good luck stock. I can't think of a more meaningful. Can- well, thanks, Sass. Yeah, so I'm on the ballot. Um, we'll see. We'll see where things things go. Um, Heath is saying 81 here currently. Said, oh, yeah. I was talking to one of my classmates at graduated high school. I was talking with him today. He still lives uh, in the town where I grew up in. So, and he's like, oh man, I so wish I would have moved to like Tennessee, Tennessee. And I've heard, and I know people have moved to Tennessee and they're like, yeah, it's like a great mix of, of weather. Like, um, and, um, so I'm like, yeah, it's likely not happening for me. But, uh, if, if I was younger, if I would have read, uh, Aaron Clary's reconnaissance man as a 17 year old, I would have done reconnaissance. And I think I would have also just left the state to uh, for college, right to a warmer area, so I could have like you know scoped it out and or taken a job after college in a warm area, or just a <laughs> a not Wisconsin area. Uh, literally from November to um, April, like it, it's just it's cold and it's snowy and the weather is just if you're an outdoors person, it just isn't good. So, um, but yeah. So anyway, Tennessee for good things. So I had a friend from California who moved to Tennessee. I had a friend from Idaho who moved to Tennessee. My uh, my oldest daughter loves Tennessee. She's been there. So, um, but uh, yeah, Tennessee is full. Andrew, crime is out of control. Meth everywhere. Don't. Whoa, Andrew. Andrew's um, saying don't come to ten- Tennessee. So now I have to rethink things. Andrew is uh, saying Tennessee's not, not all it's cracked up to be. So Tennessee is odd. It's on the humid side, but you get all of the weather types here. So, yeah, I don't know. It's unlikely I'm moving <laughs> anytime soon, um, especially now that my house property is going up 25% just this year alone. And uh, 
Um, I, I don't know. It's just unlikely that's happening. But I, I would not have stayed in a in a cold weather climate. Good thing again, you know, Aaron Clary, reconnaissance man, you know, brought up know when you're 17, 18, you know, understand what you like to do. Like I like to be outside. I like to bike. I like the outdoor stuff. I didn't like to snowmobile. I'm not a skier. I don't do those things. So like to plan your life long-term in a cold weather climate, Wisconsin meant that four to five months of the year, I'm basically shutting things down uh, that I'm not doing things that I like, where if you go in a more, uh, welcoming climate, a little warmer climate, things like that. You know, maybe you're doing those things nine, 10 months a year, which would be a big difference um, for me. So I'm not a big, I'm not big into this whole seasons thing. Oh, there's four seasons. That's great. <laughs> That's there's, well then, you know, I get the leaves. I'm like, yeah, leaves. And then I have to rake all of them. And I'm like, as you know, days and whatever, but I just, I'm just not into it. I'm not into it. Um, so anyway, red is saying, uh, uh, is it because all the stupid millennials moving there mixed with the Rust Belt degrading? So who knows? I, you know, I think I would, if I wasn't here, I would move to the very northern part of our state and get some land and just kind of uh, hermit myself, isolate myself off a little bit from the world. Um, I have a friend of mine who did that. He retired. This was like three years ago. He retired and built a cabin on like 80 acres. And, uh, and his, his cabin is way offset from the road. Can't see from the road in a very rural town in Wisconsin. Like very, and, um, that's just what he wanted to do. He's like, I'm just kind of burned out on people. I don't want to interact with people. I just, I want to drive my four wheeler out in my woods and, you know, cut firewood and kind of do some other things. And, and I know other people have done that too. And actually that fits my personality well, but unfortunately you know, <laughs> it's me and my wife, my kids, and I have to get everybody on board, which wouldn't happen. But, uh, but I would be there. I would, I would totally be, be up for that kind of a solitude. I think it'd be kind of a, a, a neat thing. Um, but anyway, um, Vanessa's writing, if a bifurcation happens in my life, I'll most likely return to Alaska. Yeah. Um, Andrew's saying it's good here, but I want to keep it good. Andrew, you don't think the doc moving to Tennessee would, would be a, a value added for Tennessee. So yikes. So I think I would, I'm not saying, um, other people wouldn't be, but I'm saying like, yes, doc would bring value to Tennessee. I'll prolong to my like areas that aren't over congested. Yeah. That's where I currently live is not over congested yet we have um you know a hospital you know three minutes from our house and you know walgreens and you know just things um that kind of the conveniences of or the necessities i don't know but yet it, you know i don't live in a congested um area which i appreciate um i wouldn't either i wouldn't want to live in a congested area no way um, couldn't, there's no way. So, um, trying to get back here to the screen. And then, uh, Zippy's saying, uh, to red, the whole cycle of, of learning to work or support yourself is, uh, foobard. Whoa. Okay. Doc, um, are you going to bring, no, 
I'm not Andrew. <laughs> you know, a funny thing is that um, we were vacationing in 2018 in South Dakota, and we were out in like Custer National Park and stuff like that. And we were parked, you know, taking pictures in this, this uh, big, um, you know, RV pulls up beside us and this, this retired couple gets out and they're doing the same thing, thing taking pictures stuff. And then the guy is talking to me and stuff. He's like, oh, where are you? You know, you got Wisconsin place. Where are you from? I said, oh, like outside of Madison. He looks at me, he said, Madison. And he's, you know, or goes, you know, like, it's a very liberal city. I'm like, yeah, it is. I'm like, but I live outside of Madison. I don't live in Madison. I don't really subscribe to the Madison type philosophy on, on things. But I said, but I was kind of surprised, like, you know, the perception that he, I don't know where he was from, different state. But I was like, no, it's, I said, no, I get, I get what you're saying. I could totally get it. Um, but I'm, I'm outside of, outside of that. Um, no. So I'm, I'm going to wait now for the uh, Tennessee Chamber of Commerce for the state to contact me. I would love to come to Tennessee and to, uh, to talk, to do like a, a couple book events. That would be good. Like Tennessee would be, I mean, I would be up for that. So anybody know a connection there, make it happen. Um, so man against the masses saying define necessities. So I don't know who that was aimed at. I live pretty, uh, I don't need a lot of stuff. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't. So, um, Bacon saying, I want to pick the worst Hawaiian island and send them all there. So, wow. Wow. So let's go to, um, what is a strange attractor? So first of all, this has nothing to do with gravity. So it's one of the things I wrote in the book. I, I, this is something I learned of when I was writing the velocity of information. Strange attractors. It has nothing to do with gravity. Um, so I'm just going to read my little statement on this, and then kind of we'll get some examples. As mathematically defined, a, a crisis occurs with the appearance of a strange attractor. The word attractor has nothing to do with gravitation. As in dynamic systems, attractors provide a way to describe the asymptomatic or asymptot asymptotic behavior of typical orbits, meaning that one orbit has no influence on another orbit. It just is its orbit, okay? Um, operationally, this means that there is a dramatic change in the dynamic behavior of the system. The present disconnects from the past, and the past behavior has little or no predictive value as the system navigates its way through a profoundly altered landscape. An undetected, here's an example, an undetected racing comet with a 20,000-year orbit. So this big sweeping comet like that we have no idea that's out there. It's maybe hidden behind some planets or whatever. It's like way out there. Nobody knows it's out there. And suddenly this unpredicted, this, uh, this, this comet, which, which has cycled past the earth for billions of years, right? And we have no idea. Suddenly it, it, it collides with some, some rocks, like, you know, out in space, a couple light years away. And it changed its tra trajectory. And now it's headed straight toward us. So the strange attractor is this, 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 um, you know, this comet that we have no, we don't even know it's out there, right? The strange attractor suddenly it comes in and it, it disrupts everything and it can wipe us out. 
So that's the strange attractor, right? We have no idea. Another strange attractor, hyperinflation. So hyperinflation um, is a strange uh, attractor. So for an economy. So uh, for example, during the 1923 hyperinflation crisis of the Weimar Republic, Republic um, workers were often paid twice a day and because things would change in costs so much, so um, frequently, like twice a day. In addition, farmers refused to take any form of paper money for their crops because they, it was kind of useless. The harvest of 1923 sat in farmers' warehouses while cities were empty, star, um, starvation and civil rest un, uh, loomed. So let's get really clear on strange attractors. Okay, let's get really clear on strange, strange attractors. So one of the myths about, um, I guess, normalcy, right, is we don't, we're kind of operating within this bigger system. <laughs> so think about, we don't know, for example, um, there could be this this comet, like it's been out there and it's like now it's 20,000 20, light years away or something. And now, but it's turned around and it's aiming toward us. So we could still be in this chaos event, but we just get used to it. It's kind of like the pandemic, right? At some point, you kind of get used to the chaos of wearing the mask, of having things shut down early, be unpredictable, school on or off, remote work, not remote. You kind of get used to operating in that outcome basin of chaos. It's still chaos, but you kind of set up your hut in chaos. You get used to working in chaos. So that's what this whole strange attractor thing is, is something happens that suddenly hits you like a, like a, um, a pool, you know, like a ball on a, on a pool table. And it just send, sends you off in a different direction. You're like, and you have no idea it's going to hit you. It's just like, um, so that could be, we, um, a strange, uh, that's a strange attractor. It could be something economically or, you know, it's the moment you wake up and, um, yeah, suddenly, you know, hyperinflation has kicked off and how that then amplifies because people try to, to buy things and now there's fewer things to buy. So the prices go up and now people are bigging things up. And so this whole strange attractors is saying even the system we're in that we think is pretty normal, there's probably this, this chaos um, constellation out there. Things that are happening that if they swing around at just the right time and hit us, it'll rocket us off and throw us all into chaos. Like, so that is, that's the thing, right? Strange attractor. It has nothing to do with, uh, um, again, nothing to do with gravity. It's nothing we really predict. We see it's something that just happens, a strange attractor. Or like, you know, North and South Pole shift <laughs> on the earth. Like that's a strange attractor. We have no idea like that's going to, to um, happen. So it, it, it changes. It puts us, it's an introduction of something that, puts us into chaos. So, yeah. So think of, again, so we've talked about some terms today, so let's try to get those. Crisis, people think they can make a decision to avert crisis. Chaos, your chaos is an event where it's a disorder. You have to outlive it. You have to adjust within it. Your decisions within chaos aren't going to influence that chaos, like an earthquake, right? <laughs> you can't talk the earthquake out of being an earthquake. Um, we talked about bifurcation, meaning things have a point where they they change, right? So if it's ice, 
to water, it's 32 degrees. That's bifurcation point. So if you're on a lake and you're, you're, you're ice fishing and it, the ice gives way because it's warmed up, that's a hard bifurcation instantly happens. Or some of your bending metal, it just breaks. It's hard bifurcation. If you're on, if you have ice in your drink and it just melts as, you know, it gets 32 degrees and more, that's a soft bifurcation. So over time, it's more dispersed. Or if you have metal and metal starts to bend, but it doesn't break, right? That's a soft bifurcation. But then again, we have these strange attractors. We can think that we have everything ironed out in a system. Everything is all set. We have everything accounted for and suddenly something happens that we didn't anticipate, right? So it's a strange attractor that comes in. Um, yeah, you know, like you, um, again, you know, a comet comes around that we had no idea was out there. It's traveling at 20,000 miles an hour and it's going to collide into earth. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, strange, strange attractor, you know, could be that, uh, it could be an earthquake, right. And a, a building falls down or something like that. I mean, there's just these things that we, we didn't anticipate. So, um, and then once these strange attractors happen, they change the, the orbit of our system. So we can no longer function within whatever our daily routine is or our societal routine. We get bumped out. We have to create a new routine. So like a strange attractor would have been the, the attacks on the Twin Towers on 9-11. Put us out into a chaos event instantly. All the planes grounded throughout the country, right, for what was it, like almost a week. Um, and then once we start up again into our routine, we're no longer in the pre-9-11 routine. We're in a, a new environment, a new Taurus, a new similarity where, you know, if you're flying, you have to take your shoes off. You can only have this much of a bottle of shampoo and stuff like that. Um, where, you know, money transactions are more scrutinized and things like this. So, yeah, it's kind of getting those points across. Um, so let's go to uh, Shinobi Wan. Yo-yo, plus one shield. Hey, buddy. Red is saying hyperinflation creates a vacuum for the top to profit off the bottom based on chaos in the public sector. So, yeah. and Right. So once chaos is introduced um, into that section, then you have no idea how it's going to, to scale, right? Who is going to try to buy up the resources and competition for truck drivers to get certain resources to certain areas. And so, like, one of the things I read today is that um, – communities are having a hard time hiring firefighters, EMS, police, but let's just take firefighters, EMS, because a firefighter might make the same salary that someone is getting paid at a retail store in the current environment, right? Or at a factory. Um, and the benefit, I guess, previously, the, the firefighter position had benefits, um, you know, and, and if you were in it long term, you'd have a pension, stuff like this, and it paid more. But now that's kind of out there. It's out of the equation. So the economic kind of, um, uh, what should I say here? The, the economic um, strange attractor, which has happened is we've, we've leveled out these, this kind of economic, um, I don't know, playing field, right? It's really weird. So, you know, 
I would think like, right, a firefighter with all the training and the responsibility and, and things like that. And, and you'd want longevity in that position. So you didn't have to keep it this induction process of every couple of years getting new firefighters. You would pay firefighters as a society more than you would pay someone who was working at a retail store, right? That would seem to make sense um, based upon the responsibilities of those two positions. But now they're much more competitive, right? Because the firefighter has been more stagnant. The retail positions have gone up. So people, and that's what the article is saying. It's like for kind of the first time, um, they're having a difficult time recruiting firefighters on an economic level um, because they're, people are saying, well, I could do this without having to do all of the additional training and the overnight shifts and, um, you know, potentially dying in a fire, right? So, um, yeah, uh, Bacon, I don't really, I didn't have that one figured out really well. <laughs> I'm just saying, let's just say like there's something, there's some scenario where there's there's something that could, um, that we have no idea that is out there, whether, it, and it could be, it could be a computer glitch. Let's say it's not a, Let's say it's not a comet. Let's say there's some some computer code that, as as you know, remember on, on 1999 when they thought the computers would, on 2000, a lot of them would freeze up and there could be all these things that didn't turn out. But let's say there's some like latent computer code thing, originally built into coding, and there's a certain year, a certain moment, like it's going to hit, and no one is really aware of it. That could be like a strange attractor, right? That there's there's something in this this computer code that in, in the year, you know, 2025 at 9.54 on March 21st, something's going to happen because of where the code is written. But yeah, so the, the strange attractors are the things that that hit that you have no idea um, that you, you can't, you're not anticipating for, you're not thinking of and whatever, and boom, suddenly it just happens. And um throws your your Taurus, your routine all out of whack. So um, Shinobi One is saying, and it always shoots out. So if it takes 20,000 years, uh, the last time it aimed at us will hit us at the same time. Don't think you're safe because you're ages away. Yeah. So um, it's, it's a good example. So I mean, it's one example that, that I gave. I don't know if I wrote that one in the book, but it was one that I was reading about was saying, um, you know, as people, right, as we as we think we've got things in a very stable, de uh, developed um, condition, right, that uh, we could be rocketed into chaos in a second. And there's a lot of things that could cause it to happen. Any any one of us, like if we had a stroke or a heart attack or something like that, personally, we could be rocketed into chaos. That could be a strange attractor. Um, hit by lightning, right? Be a strange attractor. But um, as a... As humanity, humanity, a strange attractor, right, could be this this meteor, this comet, or something that wasn't out there that we didn't have the technology. We have no idea, and suddenly, it's there, and you know, it it hits you, and you have to to deal. There's, I mean, there's a lot of examples. If we really sat down, we could probably you know come up with societal or environmental or things like this. Um, but I think the thing, the part of that is that we don't really know what. Well, we don't know the strange attractors that are out there. And by the time we find out what they are, it's usually too late, or it's like in retrospect, like it's it's something that's happened that's put us into chaos. Um, 
So that's the part of saying, even when things are going really well and you think you have a really stable outcome basin and things are very predictable and there's a lot of normalcy, the reality is you might just be operating within side of this global, <laughs> something else is just making his way around the, the end of the track and it's about to come back full speed at you and you're just not aware of it. So it's nothing to be fearful of, but I think it's something to, to, to say, like things are, things are, someone once told me like things are never as good as they seem and things are never as bad as they seem. And I think that holds up with kind of chaos theory. Um, so, um, yeah, so, um, let's get into, um, to red here, all economic size of the argument can agree it needs to be burnt down from the ground and, and built up again first. It's from Red. Um, Andrew doesn't want to be that guy. So I think he's going back to 9-11. So, um, yeah. So 9-11, the event would be a strange attractor. Um, I was working at LAX when, uh, this is bacon, those three-ounce liquid at three ounce liquid past TSA was passed. I used to carry the largest surgery sugary drinks in the world, so it probably was a good thing for me. So, right. Um, so again, the strange attractor of the 9-11 attacks have consequences then, and one of the consequences, for example, air travel, numerous consequences coming out of that, but like this would be one of the consequences which changes what is considered normal or our routine. Um, I should correct myself on that power vacuum comment earlier. This is red. The right non-court businesses can take advantage of the chaos market and become the new top market company. It's rare though. So yeah, all applies. I mean, so all of what I'm talking about here with bifurcations and with, um, you know, chaos and crisis and strange attractors, those are things that apply across um, economy, across um, society, across physical things, right? So they're in many dimensions. It's just kind of to recognize that they're out there. Um, I, I write about these in the velocity of information in detail with examples. Uh, Bacon is saying, my buddy and I ended up finding a route around it in door code to do it. Used it for months until he found out. And the cops were waiting. Oh, my goodness. On their side of the door. Oh, my goodness. So, yikes. Red is saying, um, modern monopolies are just LLCs in partnership with their parent company. So, so a lot of crazy stuff happening. Zippy is saying to Red, you're not wrong. Big biz and their small biz clones all dodge taxation, leading to more instability as revenue is not cycled back, but offshore across the globe. So, yeah, as we think about that in in crisis or chaos, I think it what you're saying right there, you know, both red and zippy is that's it would really be chaos, right? It would contribute to eroding systems, or the systems that have been put in place by humans, right, are now having entropy effect of going back into more disordered because maybe people are figuring out ways around these systems or or to serve their own individual interest um so it's the it's the collapsing or the eroding of systems so um the strange attractor could be right now like inflation and a crisis supply or 
you know, even boat, like that other evergreen boat getting stuck in a harbor. I mean, I know boats can pass by, but like the boat getting stuck in the Suez Canal a year or two ago could have been a strange attractor event that, you know, kicks off a lot of other chaos situations. And who would have thought it would have all started with a boat getting stuck in the Suez Canal? Um, so to read, still blame my P rights for most of it. Zippy, intellectual property. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, so let's go and do, <laughs> here's right. Look at dog, bring it back on topic. So yeah, no, no, it's all good. It's all good. Um, so let's, um, let's do this. Let's, um, do a, a short intermission. I've got my intermission video for you guys made by Swamp Dog Armory, and then we'll come back and, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, Go through the chat with you guys, and uh, and then you know I'm going to do a reading from my book, uh, the Velocity of Information. So I've got it queued up here on page 139. So I'm going to do a reading. But let's do this. Let's um, it, um, do the break video, and then I will be right back. So here we go. Yo, yo. I'm 
Hey everybody, it's the Safety Dog back here. So that's a fun intermission. So I appreciate uh, Swamp Dog Armory putting that together for me. Thank you, Swampy. I see over here in the uh, chat, it is our good friend Solitude Surfer saying, I ordered Doc's book from Amazon. Thank you, buddy. You will not be disappointed. Actually, you will be, uh, you'll love it. It's uh, 10 interviews. Uh, Larry Lawton, America's Biggest Jewel Thief. Uh, so anyway, you're going to love it. Thanks. So, yeah. And um, it officially releases um, on the 1st. So that's done. Um, let's, so I'm going to read a few things here uh, from the chat, a few of your posts, and then I'm going to do a reading from the book. So I've got the uh, book on screen to my left. This is from Red. A good example is Wizards of the Coast and various TSR LLCs it doesn't own. They're whittling, whittling them down by court of law. So, all right. I need to look that up. I don't I don't know enough about that. But thanks, um, Red. And if you can maybe post a little bit more about that, that's cool. Um, Zippy saying to Red, yeah, if you open an up IP uh, made at a Rev issue, revenue issue, pay in 20% of revenue intake, giving all unlicensed IP. You can use a cut of that 20%. They cannot take control of the market easily. So, and this is this is something um, you know, Zippy's been and thanks, right? This is something Zippy's been talking about. And I'm seeing this more with my friends in the 3D community of of uh, you know, there's more of an awareness, especially where 2A and 3D cross. Second Amendment 3D, but um, what is going to, uh, where will the, the bumpers, the boundaries be for intellectual property? Um, how will that be defined, right? Um, so I don't know. That's something that's out there. You know, I wrote about it in the Velocity of Information. I think it's remarkable because we kind of forget about it, but there was a point in time for a few months where uh, copyright and patents and stuff were lifted off of ventilator parts. For, and if people could 3D print these things, go ahead and 3D print them, right? And there wasn't a repercussion of potential, you know, liability or, um, you know, being sued that you print it, whatever. Things were put into the kind of a collective public domain for certain parts, and then those could be printed and given to hospitals, stuff like that. Um so again, I wrote about it and something we forget, it happened for the short amount of time and then it kind of got shut down again, right? Because if you're a manufacturer, <laughs> the way you make money is to protect your copyrights. But in a, in a crisis situation, I guess you would, such as a pandemic, if you could make certain things available to people um, with that, they could, you know, for the greater good, um, but yeah, it's in, it's interesting. Uh, people don't kind of think they don't think about that. So when you read about it and the processes that happen to make that come together, um, it's interesting. So um, Red is saying um, it's nerdy and drama stuff. Wizards of Coast is uh, corporate. Oh, um, Dungeons and Dragons. Um, it uh, continues to consume every existing IP into its own. Oh, yikes! Well, that's not good. Um, yeah. Okay. So I am going to read from page um, 139. So let me bring it up over here. Get this a little larger. 
be a little larger. So we're getting there. Okay, here we go. This is page 139 of uh, the velocity of information. And we're going to get down to crisis or chaos. So we're going to read through uh, this page and go down to probably the end of the next one. So I'm going to read this. Okay, crisis or chaos. Crisis implies a decisive point in a dangerous situation with anticipation of an abrupt change to the condition for better or for worse. A crisis condition may be characterized by a bifurcation, which is a parameter-dependent change in dynamic behavior. A useful distinction exists between hard, abrupt, and soft, gradual bifurcations. Hey, you know what? We've kind of read through a lot of this stuff, so let's go to a different part. Okay, let's go to, um, let's start here. A crisis, because I've just kind of gone through the rest with you. It's on page 140. A crisis is often of short duration and will have an identifiable turning point. It tends to scale in a predictable manner. People believe their own actions might resolve a crisis. Because a crisis has a degree of certainty, responses to it can be scripted in practice, such as a fire drill or contingency planning for a looming worker strike. The New York City transit strike of 2005 is an example of a, is an example of a crisis. Contract negotiations reached an impasse hard bifurcation at 3 a.m. on December 20th, 2005. Transit workers walked off their jobs, bringing a halt to the mass transit system in America's biggest city. Around 6,000 subway cars and 4,500 buses were idled. The strike tossed a wrench into the plans of millions of city residents, but also was not completely unexpected. Prior transit and sanitation strikes had been resolved at the bargaining table due to its unpopularity, the strike ended on December 23rd, 2005. An unresolved crisis might become an emergency that could, in turn, change into a chaos situation which could affect an individual, group, community, or population. An example of a crisis that could have turned to chaos is if there had been an escalation of the use of nuclear weapons during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. Chaos is a state of disorder that is amorphous and without clear turning points. Chaos quickly or gradually settles into outcome basins or creates a new mean. Chaos describes a system that will develop in unpredictable ways and will not scale linearly. It exists in a continuum with degrees of absorption by systems. A state of chaos due to a lack of or impossibility of a scripted response will usually, if not inevitably, spread. Chaos affects the global consciousness, even if only temporary. As chaos is uncertain, people do not feel that their actions will resolve it, but rather they might be able to change their behaviors to better adjust to the situation. The nonlinear features of chaos present significant challenge to routine-seeking people who must overcome habitual behavior in order to adapt their patterns to evolving network conditions. Okay. For example, modern-day emergency managers do not conduct nuclear missile attack drills in major American cities, in part due to the unlikelihood of such events and also due to the uncalculable cascade effect of compounding consequences. An interesting feature about chaotic systems that warrants emphasis is that they can exhibit very orderly behavior 
for long periods of time before making an abrupt transition. Remember the strange attractor would cause that. Even though the attractor topology has not changed, contract with a bifurcation. So again, like we can be in chaos for a really long time and we just don't recognize it. Like in the pandemic, by the 10th month, we're still in the pandemic, right? But we've adjusted our routines of our shopping and what's open and what's not and having to wear masks. So we've, we've adjusted within that chaos, even though it's still a chaos situation, right? It hasn't regressed to the mean. Um, consider the Rossler attractor, which is just what we're talking about here is a strange attractor. attractor. In mathematical differenti differential equations, it can spend a prolonged time in a near-periodic orbit on the XY lane, and then an abrupt transition to the Z-axis. So something comes in, bing, and hits it, and it flies out. In other words, when chaos occurs for long periods of times, humans might perceive that it has reached a steady state or a new familiar and predictable torus, as described in part one of this book, when it was noted that humans seek routines and patterns in their lives. But the Rossler attractor demonstrates that the mere perception of a steady state does not necessarily mean a steady state has been achieved, Thus, while chaos is generally believed to be binary, meaning we're in chaos or not, um, either there is chaos or there is not. As we will see, there are actually four states of chaos, which we get into here. So then I go through, we have right, right about four states of chaos. So, da -da -dum. Da -da -dum. so hey, it's our good friend Swamp Dog. Swamp Dog just ran your intermission and everybody thought it was awesome. So thanks, buddy. Um, not able to stay, but wanted to stop and say hi. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for a thumbs up. Appreciate it. So I'm I'm hanging out at uh, Glass of Scotch. Yeah, in the book, it says Glass of Scotch. <laughs> so, um, and when I went through it, I had a statement in there that went first person and it said, my preference is clear. And my editor said, you have to take that out. We have to just, <laughs> we can't put that in there. So I'm like, okay, I thought it'd be kind of fun for the reader, but um, we, t we took it out, but still... Um, yeah, yeah, ice cube and scotch. So it's funny. Um, Red is saying soon uh, Dungeons and Dragons will be another lockdown market where free thought is bought and paid for. That'll make Vince very sad. So, ah. So, yeah, Red is saying, hey, hi, so, and Vanessa. So, um, so yeah, that is, um, you know, that's from the velocity of information. And then going forward is the four stages of, I don't want to say stages because you can have, they're not necessarily progressive. Like you don't have to go through one to go to the next. You could have comorbid chaos or two chaos events happening at the same time, as we talked about in the last show. Um, so I'm not sure where I'm going to go with the next show here. I think I'm going to go with the wet bulb effect. Um, I might go back to essential versus non-essential. I want to do that again because I think there's one more. I, I got into it in an earlier show here on the safety doc. Like, you know, one morning in March of 2020, all of us woke up and we were sorted and we were essential versus non-essential. So our work, right? And then like our, if we have kids, like our kids school, right? You know, you're either in school or you're remote. So like, you know, um, but essential versus non-essential. And I, I made this point to the um, to the reporter. She didn't put it in the article. Article's fine, but it, she didn't put it in the article. I'm gonna stress this in future interviews though. Um, 
information changed if you were essential versus non-essential. If you were, if you were non-essential, right? If you were told to stay home, collect uh, a boosted unemployment check and things like that, you're, you weren't tuning in as much to the media. You're tuning into different, me different information. If you're deemed essential, like, whoa, like you, you have your, the information coming to you is, is different than people who are non-essential, um, who are deemed non-essential. And it, right there, that's the thing, right? It, it went quickly from being deemed essential, non-essential versus you're an essential person or non-essential. And it was kind of weird, right? Like as non-essential, we kind of offloaded all of our risk onto essential people, people working at a store, stocking the shelves for $2 extra an hour, <laughs> which is crazy, right? Truck drivers, right? Um, you know, offloading risk onto essential people. But there's this deep divide. I mean, we who would have thought? Who would have thought that you could wake up one morning and you would be deemed essential or non-essential and that your career would be deemed essential or non-essential? Like I knew a dentist at the start of that whole essential, non-essential, and he had to close his office because there wasn't a protocol for how you would treat, you know, patients, right? For the first few weeks or, you know, month or whatever of, of the pandemic, how are you going to do a cleaning and how are you going to do this and how are you going to test? And he didn't know, like, so, you know, he has his office and, and he said it was a horrible time to be a dentist. You didn't know what is going to happen next. Is it going to be where socially distanced and spreading apart where your your whole model of being a dentist and having your your the people that work for you? Is that going to have to be restructured? Are you going to have to, is it just going to be you and someone up front and a dental hygienist? I mean, what is it going to be? So um, but it is absolutely it is absolutely crazy. And I think there's a whole book to be written about that. So I've thought about if I do write a third book, what it could be about. I don't know. One of the things I've tossed around is this whole essential versus non-essential because I I don't I here's what I find when I talk to people. So I you know I bring the book out and you know talk to people about it and stuff like this. I said yeah like right right here you know right when you're 14 pages in or something there's a chapter about essential versus non-essential. And this is how people respond. They'll say, oh, yeah. Not like the Kool-Aid guy, I guess, but they'll be like, oh, yeah. I Now that you say it, like, I remember that. I remember, like, the morning or whatever, essential versus non-essential and how it – but they don't – they otherwise, like, it's not – they're not thinking about it, right? And so when you bring it up, it's really weird because people are like, oh, right. I don't – I didn't remember that that um, – that that happened. And I'm like, or they'll say, someone told me this week, they said, I, it feels like that happened like years and years ago, not just two years ago. Like, and so it is, it is strange. And I, and I think that's a, a sign where people, it hit people so suddenly it's kind of the strange attractor type thing, but um, people just didn't want to deal with it. Right. Psychologically, if your entire career had been, as a, you know, um, hair, you, you had a very successful hair salon, right? You're doing really well. And suddenly now you're deemed non-essential or a small engines place, right? And you're deemed non-essential and you have to close. Like that'll change you for the rest of your life. The way you, ch you view your perception, the way you view how society or your government responded to you, um, almost the shunning 
how arbitrary these decisions were, how fast they were, like in that you had no ability to have a recourse in that, to have some deliberation. It was just like, it was done. Um, I think, I think those scars, those wounds, I guess, will be with people for generations. Um, I, I, I just don't think it's, you know, we smoothed over it. <laughs> like we don't talk about it anymore. And, and so like when you read the velocity of information, one of the things I've found is I have 471 endnotes in the book. I have custom graphics, right? Pictures that I took during the pandemic. So you actually see a playground wrapped in yellow police tape with a sign that says playground is closed and stuff like that. People don't remember that because it was so out of the the Taurus for them, so out of their routine and so disturbing. And at, at a time when they are in chaos and they can't do things to change things, they just tuned it out. And so when they read the book right now, the initial response from people, one is like, awesome book, right? But the other part with the velocity of information, 471 endnotes, very you know tightly, put together my photos, my interviews, timeless. People forget that this stuff happened. And it was two years ago and less, right? Because I, I put the book into the publisher's hands in September of 2021. Um, they don't remember that less than a year ago, we had the colonial pipeline hack. So 40% of the country had their gas interrupted and over a thousand gas stations ran out of gas on the East Coast. Like people don't remember that happened. It was less than a year ago. Um, and so it to me, I didn't expect that when I wrote the book. I didn't expect, I, I really thought by writing, starting out with essential versus non-essential. The One of the reasons I put that as one of the first chapters in the book, literally it's like maybe 14 pages in or something like that. It's not very far in. Um, and I put it there specifically because I wanted everybody reading the book to uh, to have some vesting in the book then, because everyone was sorted as essential versus non-essential. So to have a connection to the book and to the author and where I'm kind of going with this. Um, and I'm finding out that that's not the case. People don't deny that it happens. It's not that. Nobody denies that it happens. It's just that when people get to that, the response isn't, this is how I felt this out impacted me. It's like, oh yeah, I, now that you wrote about it, now that I'm reading it, it did happen. I'm like, how in the world did you forget about that? And it is, um, it's crazy because there are so many things in the book, like the picture of the playground that was shut down. People, oh yeah, I guess the playgrounds by us were shut down. Oh yeah, I remember they took the basketball hoops down. I mean, people, how do you forget this? And I think the the point to me is the takeaway is people um it is it is it was so much out of their taurus it was such a shock it was such a strange attractor they just didn't deal with it they just ignored it they didn't let it sink in or it sunk in but it passed their consciousness and kind of sunk in deep into their soul and their body and people won't forget this right like every time if you're taking a job right you're going to have in the back of your mind what happens if I'm deemed essential or non-essential? Can I work from home or am I just like going to be on unemployment or is this job going to shut down? Or if I'm going like for training, what should I do if I'm going to college or career? Because like, I don't want to be in something where 
I, it could be shut down, right? If there's another pandemic and I'm, um, so this, this whole thing, and then even as families get together for gatherings and, and stuff, there's this weird, um, I don't know if it's hubris. There's this weird feeling of like, whether you've been essential or non-essential or there's this weird factor like that. So, you know, I, I don't think this has been reconciled. It's been forgotten. I read a very popular book written on returning to normal after the pandemic, which is, it's an, it's a good book. It's not a great book. I'm not going to give the title of it or the author, but um, I think she missed the point. And everyone's kind of like swarming around this book as, oh, like pre post-pandemic. And I, I, I could have gone that route with this book and maybe it would have like gotten more attention if I would have said, oh, the post-pandemic handbook or something like that. But the book isn't about a pandemic, as I said to, you know, when I was interviewed for the paper, I said, the book is a, the pandemic is a scaffold. It's a means to describe concepts of finite voltage and crowd and behavior and regressing to the mean, these things. But this book really isn't about the pandemic. So people have gone out there and, you know, they've kind of like made their dime on saying, oh, this is about the pandemic. And so they write this book and stuff like this. And, and there are some things that are kind of similar to stuff that I've written, but um, I still, <laughs> I, I guess I'm honest. I think my book is better. I think it's, um, so it's kind of irritating a little bit when people do that, but, um, but anyway, uh, let's go over here to the chat. Andrew is saying the golden age of the restaurants is over. Yeah, I believe so. You know, Remember Howard Johnson's? Howard Johnson's was the biggest restaurant chain, I think, up until the mid to late 80s. And now I think the last one closed like um, a few years ago. We had a Howard Johnson's 20 miles from us. And to go there as a kid was a phenomenal experience. Um, but yeah, the uh, the restaurant stuff, um, for like my family, it's very rare that we go out to eat. I mean, some of the fast food stuff once in a while, but like an actual restaurant once every four months, maybe, you know, but yeah, the golden age is, is over. I, I, someone in the restaurant business was telling me like, even like, you know, you think of, you know, you would just have endless crackers like available and like now crackers are being measured out. They only give you, you know, so many, but, uh, Andrew, I mean, the quality is only going down for dining. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. And part of that is, you know, cost savings. The other part is just induction, right? You don't have people who've been there for 20 years. Uh, so you just have somebody coming in and, um, yeah, it's, there's a lot in there. Um, so yeah. Um, Vanessa saying our last hard Johnson closed in the 2000s up here. Yep. So who would have thought? Who would have thought? Hojo's are still thinking can't. Hey, thanks, John Rice. Keep keep going to the Howard Johnsons. Golden age of large indoor malls, passable. Yeah. And Vince from uh, Masculine Geek uh um has spoken about that quite a bit because he worked at a mall, I think, in the 80s. And boy, you know, when I was when I was growing up in the 80s, I think it was 1983, the, the community next to us, like 15 miles away, a community of like 35,000 people, 
they they built this big mall and uh it opened up like in 83 and i remember i was like in i think it was a grade school or middle school and as a middle school and i i sang there in the choir and as they opened this thing like just regular um but they had a you know the, the water fountain in the middle and all of the stores and you'd walk you know of course you guys know what a mall is but i mean it was just such an experience um and and yeah i i really miss the mall experience even the college town that i where i attended college um had a mall and at that time it was starting to decay right you know like maybe two-thirds of the stores were open and so it was getting to be the the end of the mall era but it was still a mall and i just feel yeah you're right so that that's that's past um yeah wow um I can't stand when I have to ask and only get three napkins for grease. I'm with you. I like a lot of napkins. <laughs> That's my, I'll even bring in, John, I will bring in a shop towel, you know, like just the uh, paper towel, but I'll bring in, in my like jacket pocket, like a shop towel and use it as a napkin. If I'm going to a restaurant and it's going to like a greasy burger or something like that. So um, Heath, there's a, a CH uh, called, called uh, Company Man. They go over the history of all businesses from Blockbuster to Macy's. A channel or documentary or how does CH stand for? I, I like it though, but you're right. I think that's cool. Like we don't we don't also take the time to appreciate, um, I guess I appreciate meaning and recognize that things have a, a kind of a start and a growth and an existence and then like an entropy and then they're done. Um, businesses, you know, things, societies, people's lives, things like that. I mean, it's very, it's very much a pattern, right? That we go, things get ordered, and then they eventually go to disorder, and then eventually they're gone. Um, and yeah, that is, uh, I mean, that's very real. Um, I think it's part of it's a reality and part of it is just uh, we do that more and more um small businesses get bought up i was talking to a friend out in i don't know i think he's in idaho he's like i think that's where he is he's like right on a property line like i don't but anyway um he was telling me that he buys or he raises horses and he said they're the last like saddle the comp the place that makes saddles like you know small business family business um that they are going to shut down because it's too time intensive and they just don't have enough demand and they're they're being undersold by i guess big manufacturers making saddles so he said you know um and and so my friend was saying you know it's really sad right because these things which you thought would be around forever are kind of gone you know like you just don't have this like what i always thought there would be somebody i could go to to make a saddle and now there really isn't you're gonna buy some off-the-shelf saddle i don't know where you buy tack for horses i'm not it's kind of not my thing but um so uh vanessa say 1983 senator ted stevens in alaska froze the appropriations in october for the united states air force due to the dairy situation in alaska whoa 
I was one of the persons who created that situation. Oh my goodness. Heath the same channel. Yeah. Oh, like a YouTube channel. So yeah, devoted on the rise and fall. I I, I studied um Sunbeam, the rise and fall of uh, Sunbeam, you know, makes toasters and stuff like that. And it was pretty wild how um yeah, that that went from you know just really uh, growing and successful to you know, like a new uh, president come in and basically just gutted everything. Simmons Mattress, I think, is another example like uh, being bought out by a hedge fund, and then they sold a lot of the equipment. And eventually, um, you know, thinned everything out, and so yeah, I mean, and so these things are really kind of get into that whole chaos right there's certain things you can't control in that and then how you how you function within that but um i see that the longer i i live here so i've been here 20 years in this house and you know like there aren't a lot of us in the neighborhood who have been here 20 years you know maybe I, maybe three of us out of like 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 say 15 homes three of us that have been here for 15 or for 20 years or longer. So, um, you know, you always have this kind of entropy, but, uh, um, yeah. So, oh, um, Heath is saying they have Simmons. So, yeah. Uh, no, I get uh, every DOD dairy contract to change inspection requirements is Vanessa. Uh, those changes allowed Carnation out of Oregon to deliver dairy for Alaska, U.S. Air Force, et cetera. Whoa, growth cycles, yeah. So you're right. And I think, at least for me, and, and this is something I think if I was to write again about, or as I talk to the you know, velocity of information and, and really try to have people <laughs> let it sink in, right? Because if you're being interviewed by a reporter, I mean, it's for a news story. And you can't, you know, there's not going to be a lot of deep dive stuff there. but if there was a book review or, or a book study or something like that, it, it's to really recognize too and velocity of information, like these entropy of systems. And then also, of course, there's two parts of velocity of information. It's how fast information gets to us, speed in a direction to us right away, to our phones. Eventually in 20 years, what will that look like? Will it be to us by our phones or will Elon Musk say it'll be to us via a neural implant, right? Or you know, where the, where everything will be with you all the time. And you'll, you'll just boom, you know, tap here and visually it will be represented in front of you as if you're looking at a heads up display. But, um, and the other part of course is chaotic times of under, understanding what is chaos, what is crisis, how to identify chaos. These growth cycles, as Heath said, have some part of chaos in them, right? If you're starting out as a company, it's probably pretty chaotic. You're Then you're uh, putting order to the company and to the business and, once you refine your processes and maintain order, but then as the marketplace changes and other things and whatever, and people who initially have that vision leave the company or whatever, um, that then kind of goes into an entropy or disorder effect uh, because there's newer companies starting up that are looking at things and have different advantages. So I think this whole thing of entropy and not to fear, but I think one a company that embodies that right now is General Electric, like General Electric, from a, a stock perspective, uh, you know, just fell off a cliff <laughs> 15 years ago, never really returned. 
even though you're like, well, you make like train, you know, locomotives and aircraft engines and all this other stuff. Like, how is this not still a robust company? Like from that standpoint, it just is kind of like lingering on, you know, um, it's just kind of a weird thing. If you, if you kind of look at like the growth of general electric and then how it, it just kind of flattened out right around maybe the year 2000, um, just, it's, it's weird, but, um, I think personally, one, if people know if crisis, you know, there's an opportunity to possibly make a decision, make a decision then, right? If you think you can solve something, like go ahead and make it. Um, chaos is if you can understand you're in chaos, get yourself to a position where you can weather the storm. Um, and whether, you know, again, if that's you personally or your, your family or whatever, but weather the storm, like try to outlast it and then assess it and maneuver within it. But, um, you know, it's all these people thinking they can they can do minute tweak things to um, unravel chaos, and you can't. Um, what are bifurcations? Just knowing what the the bending or breaking points are of things, um, and 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 you get to these things too, right? How long does it take before um, you have to you have to make interpretations right is it better for things to just like suddenly does it would it be better for the stock market to go down ten thousand points in the next month and interest rates to go up to ten percent or is it better for the market to just kind of plot along and interest rates to go up by 0.25 for like the next like five years or something i mean the soft bifurcation what is better ultimately for people um i think people have been sold that a soft bifurcation will typically uh, to typically be better, almost always be better. And I don't think that's true at all. I think uh, uh, hard bifurcation forces people to deal with things, even though there's it's painful and things. I, I don't think the pain is necessarily spared with a soft bifurcation, which is spread out over time. Um, so John Rice is saying, or Bacon is saying, I told you to make a Molotov cocktail out of their napkins with an eyesight, but no, don't listen to Bacon. He doesn't know, oh my goodness, Bacon. Vanessa Kitty saying, without appropriation, nothing can be bought or issued, supplied a field day. Then I showed up uh, for paper and pencils. Oh, my goodness. So that is, uh, wow. Zippy saying, GM and cars in general, high cost, no innovation, no real competition. The vehicle market is the walking dead. So, yeah. that's a, So it's an example. It, and I think one of the things to and I wrote about it in the book and I believe I conveyed this point very strongly in the book right now is a chaos time right we're coming out of a pandemic we're entering inflation plus world conflict you know Ukraine Russia who who knows where that could go but um I think there's a point in, in there's a point in the book where I wrote about you know, we went from warehouse manufacturing where you'd make a lot of product and put it in a warehouse and then as supply would be there, you'd ship it out of the warehouse. That was in the 80s, you know, and before. And then by the 2000s, it was just-in-time manufacturing. So less warehouse, more coming, being made, being shipped out. And now it's being evolved from just-in-time to 3D printing. And don't underestimate, like if you have a friend, right, with an Ender you know, three 3D printer for 200 bucks, like you can print a heck of a lot of stuff. And the white papers out there from General Electric and other companies, right, are saying, we believe we are five to 10 years away from 3D printing 
half of things that people use today, including fast food restaurants, for, for example, will 3D print their, their menus, their food. And not that this is not happening, it's already happening in some countries, just ha not happening in the US. Um, so I'm just putting it out there. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying like part of what's happening right now, I'm convinced part of happening with supply chain and all that is like the very top corporate folks are looking at this saying, we could invest more in just-in-time manufacturing and alleviate some of this, right? We could invest more in transportation and stuff, but we're heading in a direction where transportation is going to be more automated and we're also going to have 3D printing that is going to happen at site. It's going to be more data, member velocity of information. The information is going to be if you need a fuel pump at Napa, the you know, the computer code for that that fuel pump is going to be downloaded from some, you know, cloud-based site and print it right there at Napa. They're not going to have it in the back room like in five to ten years. Five to ten years. Like they're not saying more than 10 years, they're saying five to 10 years. So I think this is part of the, the whole thing is saying if if you're really, really at the top level exec right now or that board of executives, you're, you've got to be looking at this saying it's kind of like the ice box where you actually had ice delivered to your house, <laughs> right? And put in your freezer, refrigerator to uh, now electronic. You're not going to keep perfecting the ice box. You've got to be looking at this saying 3D printing is just like, it's there. It is so rapidly developing. Metal 3D printing is out there. They've made a, an engine which has run successfully for, I don't know, a few hundred thousand miles off of 3D printing. You're going to get to, the, the this point is out there. And there, where people are just like, why put the investment into just-in-time when we're almost at 3D? And that kind of puts everybody in a bad spot right now um, because this stuff isn't being done and also this automation to right you know if we're going to be automating vehicles or some of this transportation stuff like why should we keep investing in stuff that's not automated For, so it's something how i how i look at it is i think we would have got there in the year like 2040 anyway with like singularity and stuff like a lot of this stuff kind of would have just happened in the pandemic through it to 2030 so now we're kind of like you know, like with remote work, curbside, all of that, like probably in 2030, you would have seen that ghost kitchens, whatever. But um, we still have like a 10-year gap to make up. And the people with the money are like, I'm not going to invest in old technology. I'll invest in new, but the new is not really perfected yet. So I'm going to like be very careful. So we'll kind of limp along with the old technology as we're also investing in the new technology. So I really believe that's happening. I believe we're very close to this massive shift into 3D printing for a lot of things throughout everything, medical, um, you know, through retail for food, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to tell you to eat a 3D printed burger or something like that. I'm just saying, I just, I think this is all uh, rapidly, rapidly approaching within five to 10 years. Um, and if you're an investor and if you're, you know, board of directors and stuff, you're not, you know, when just-in-time manufacturing happened, people weren't investing back in warehouses, even though they knew there could be disruptions or big weather events that could disrupt areas and you're going to have shortages, but then hopefully other things would kind of fill in. And, um, but 
it's just I, I the one thing I regret in philosophy of information is I didn't do a, a, a diagram, a figure of like 1980 warehouse, 2000 just in time, 2030 3D print. Like I wish I would have put that in a visual, um, but you know whatever. Um, no one ever asked me like, do, what do you do? You regret anything? Because in the book, that's kind of like a, a question like you ask authors. No one's asked me that. So I would think like that would be one thing is I wish I would have made that a little more pronounced to people and not as kind of passive as it's in the book. So, um, so this is um, Andrew. It's just wild that Sears had all the stuff in place to dominate the internet. Sears did. That was a good point, Andrew. So, the you know velocity of information you know as we look at you know how systems change and how you know our information for retail used to be the Sears catalog when i was growing up i you know as a kid i remember getting that really thick Sears catalog like a 3 inch thick catalog but you know every november so you'd have plenty of time as a kid to go through and find the stuff you wanted your parents to order for christmas and it was that way for years, right? You know, that you would order things from a Sears catalog, almost anything. I think you could order a house. No, I think, I know you could order a house that um, from the Sears catalog. And so Sears, right, had all of that put together, the system of how people are already ingrained to that and if they could have moved it online and, and things like that. And, and then it just fell apart. But right, we have this whole method of this whole system um, that's pretty remarkable, yeah. That that Sears. So so yeah. I, looking as a retrospect, as a forensic on that, I mean, that would be an interesting story or or thing to read of like how, you know, it, especially in the '80s, Sears Sears management then sit down, you know, their top tier, and or as Amazon started and quickly like pivot Sears and say, hey, we already have a lot of these systems in place. Like we know how to get any product from pretty much any to any place, right? They delivered all over the world. Um, so yeah, it just, they, they never, they never adapted or they didn't see that. Um, again, the system kind of peaks to perfect the, uh, the catalog thing. And then that's entropy and a new technology comes in Amazon internet takes them out. Um, so yeah, that's, I mean, that's fascinating. I wonder if this is bacon, any companies that deliver giant ice cubes to houses in Arizona for swimming pools. That'd be kind of interesting, wouldn't it? So, um, Zippy, look at EA or Activision Blizzard. Uh, dumb people in charge will mess things up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, it's usually just people people making bad decisions, trying to, to read, they read the future poorly like they just don't use the intel around them and then it, it becomes too late which i guess i mean it's hard to say like that anybody can read the future perfectly but um those seem like really weird situations uh, especially like how a sears could have just like folded in on itself and and to not pivot um so um yeah yeah homes Yep. Um, Vanessa Heath. ZYL Tech makes aluminum extrusion 3D printing. Yep. 
and yeah, I mean, we're looking now, I mean, you have to buy, right. You know, the, um, what is it? The coil for 3d printing, but I mean, the actual 3d printer itself, a good ender three is like 200 bucks, which can do a lot of things for you. Um, so this is to me, Zippy, no, they just did not want to invest. They wanted to keep all the profits to make the business. So, right, that's, Zippy, you're right. Serious. That's the other part. So you look at the profits coming in and, again, your business model, research, development, and people are like, well, you know, maybe I'm going to be here for two, three years or I can retire. So let the let the next person deal with it, right? Like, I don't want to be the change agent. So, but yet if you're an Amazon, right, if you're Jeff Bezos, and I think like Amazon took off because they got government contracts, right? That was really the story there. But otherwise they were kind of fledgling for quite a while. But, you know, if you're small like that in and starting, you really don't have as much to lose. So you can be more risky in the environment. You have more chaos that's happening where um, you're less uh, tolerant to chaos if you're a Sears. You want to dampen that system down quite a bit. And you get comfortable in your Taurus, your routine, if you're Sears. And you just think you'll, everybody will keep adjusting to it or you'll just be able to impose it onto everybody else. You will adapt to Sears. You will go to our stores. You'll continue with the catalog and you'll like it. So Bacon's saying, I remember going to Kmart looking for a specific backpack they used to carry back in 19, or 2007. was the saddest <laughs> thing I ever saw. So, oh my, you know, Kmart... Again, you know, when I was growing up, um, so we're saying like, you know, 70s, 80s as a kid, you know, Kmart was a pretty big thing. There was a, I remember the Kmart that was built again in the community next to us. We, I lived in a community of like 1,500 people next to 30,000. And I remember going there when it opened up. Like there were, there was like a helicopter there. Like, you know, they were, uh, it was like a big thing. Like I just remember this, this, Kmart opening and um and yeah and I'm, I'm sure it's not there anymore I think that whole area has been kind of wiped out but uh but yeah we had a Kmart here where I live so when I you know when we moved here we had a Kmart we had a Staples we had a lot of stores family clothing store so like I mean all this stuff is gone um but there's I think there's a point to be learned here in these entropy of systems and velocity of information of how we process things and how we tr we try to stay in our Taurus and and uh, and sometimes the, if you do that too long, the game passes you by. And it's not that you can make moves to to put yourself in the right position to survive all of these things. I mean, if you have a business that's not built on that, it's too it's unfortunate, right? It's too bad. I mean, um, but yeah. Oh, hey, Heath is printing on his Ender uh, 3 uh, version 2 right now, or 3v2. So, so yeah, you're probably printing something here for the dock. So, um, oh, yeah, Rosie O'Donnell was the beginning of the end of Kmart. So, Vanessa, I worked for Kmart for a time. That's the only company to ever owe me cash each week, or pay me cash each week, yeah. I think when I worked at Menards, I think we got paid each week. Um, Vanessa, blue light specials. Yeah. And it, like a Kmart was a pretty big deal. I mean, they had a, a really good deli, like the one that opened up here 
yeah, my, well, when I was growing up as a kid, so, you know, maybe like, let's say like 1980, like had a really good deli and, and stuff like that. It was just, it was a big deal. Um, he had this thing. We had a hot air balloon in the parking lot that came out one time. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it was, it was a huge thing. Um, when that community, you know, got that big Kmart. Um, so yeah, just, so, you know, we, we tie back speed of information and the ability to, to recognize in your own Taurus when things are changing. Right. So, um, you know, it's, it's the workers on nine 11 in the twin towers who realized Hey, like we are in chaos. I got to get out of here versus the people who are delaying recognizing chaos and thinking it's still crisis. Oh, it's, you know, the sprinklers will turn on something will be, this will be handled or whatever. And, um, and, and it's just, we're, we're really ingrained or like deeply ingrained into wanting crisis versus accepting chaos. And the faster you can accept chaos, the better. Like when I was when I was in the car accident um, that destroyed my car, and uh, that was on the interstate, and it was you know snowy day and stuff. I knew two seconds before I was in the crash, like it was going to happen. Things started to unfold in front of me. Cars were sliding around, stuff like that. And I knew instantly, boom, I'm going to be in chaos. There's no crisis of this. And so like I, I knew it was a chaos event. It was a chaos event. Eventually it was, it would it was done. You know, as I got home, I wrote down everything that happened. I got all the insurance people and within like 72 hours, I like replaced the vehicle and stuff like that. And, but I had dealt with it as a, as a hard bifurcation chaos event. Um, I knew there was nothing I could do at that point. that was going to spare me from that, you know, out of, out of some crazy stunt driving attempt. Um, it just wasn't going to happen. I remember the blue light specials. Yeah, no, I do. Like I, I, I remember the sub sandwiches. They would be like two in a sack, and they'd be up at uh, in a cooler up by the checkout at in Kmart, like nineteen eighties Kmart, and uh, they were cheap. You know, like three bucks for two subs, and they were pretty good. Oh God, I miss those popcorn at Kmart when I were. Yeah. Oh God, I know. Um, John writes, people got calls to not come to work on. I didn't know about that. Whoa, John writes, I didn't know it. Vanessa, Toys R Us. I was banned from the West Hartford store for riding the newly released push scooter uh, at midnight. Uh, <laughs> I forgot they had Toys R Us again. Um, Andrew, when the Kmart near me closed, I was mad they didn't have the car lights and stock included. Our Kmart closed, and I think it was 2014. I went there and I, I bought as much stuff that I knew I would use, like that was on closeout. So, um, you know, when it got to like the 70, 80 percent off stuff, um, I just loaded up. But um, I don't, you know, just regular, I don't know, regular stuff that would be left, <laughs> like ice melt and um, things like that. But uh, Oh, yeah, that was sad. It's now it's been it's been bought and sold a couple times, and I don't know. It's like some farm implement uh, place, but uh, 
Yeah, it was, I don't know, it's weird. It's weird to see these these transitions. Um, but again, you know, as we talk about this, right, as we talk about this and chaos and things like that and normalcy is, I think part of what we're seeing right now, nobody's talking about this. I think I wrote it about it in the book, Velocity of Information. Velocity of Information being da data is saying 3D printing. I mean, we are moving rapidly to 3D printing, whether it be a home 3D printer or whether it's going to be like you're going to go to Walmart and certain things you order are just going to be 3D printed there. They're not going to be trucked in. The filament will print the things that you need or you're going to subscribe to it like an Amazon subscription or something like that. Um, that but you will have a substantial number of things. And we already know it's in the billing industry, like 3D printed homes, but... Um, I just, I completely expect that we will enter a 3D printed society, which will then have benefits to the fact that things won't have to be transported um, and they can be adapted and kind of crowdsourced. But you're also going to run into, as Zippy had said, like these 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 very intense in, uh, intellectual property challenges on things. Um, so one of, like uh, earlier in the chat, Flying Rich was here and he had some bearings for his pool vacuum that he had to uh, replace these bearings. So he put them out into the 3D community on Thingiverse or whatever and said, anybody have some ideas on this or whatever? And basically like some people got together and worked and created a file. I think this is how it went down. And they, uh, Rich had done it and originally it didn't turn out the, the way he wanted it. And then they, they modified it and then it, it did turn out the way he wanted it. But I think you're gonna have people working together, right? But then what does that mean for corporations or businesses um, who have had this pr proprietary information that, you know, they, or these things that they expect to be selling you and pretty soon you can make these things. Um, how does that change um, stores and buying and ordering things? So I don't know. Um, it's all stuff to be thought about. But I, but again, I think this with velocity of information, because we've gotten, we've, we're able to, to, direct large amounts of information very rapidly now. You know, like you couldn't have downloaded a file to 3D print something 20, 25 years ago. I mean, it would take you an entire day to download a file, right? Um, and now you could, you can download that same file in 60 seconds. So, you know, but anyway, um, John is saying, hey, my sister lives in apartments that used to be a Kmart. I don't know. It's, it's hard to think of a Kmart being turned into apartments. The Kmart I worked at in 2010 went back here. It no longer was, um, it is no longer there. Now, 1987, I moved to Bronx in October. So, yeah. Copyright works are important, especially if you write code for, you're right. So, this is going to be an uh, a awkward time for innovation, right? As people start to 3D and share files and Thingiverse and stuff like that and, and the more capacity in 3D printing, right? What is that going to look like in this whole subscription thing to being able to print certain things? It'll become very clear very quickly. I think we're, we're 10 years out max, probably five years out realistically. So velocity of information. So it's a point, yeah, I'm going to, I wish I would have, again, underscored that a little bit more in the book. But when I do... I have some interviews coming up with media. I'm going to underscore that and say, you know, we also have to look at, boom, you know, the people that could participate. 
you had big businesses and whatever could do these these uh, print of of products and things like that. And and now, right, with two hundred dollars, this information can get to you because we have the internet. We have velocity of information. Information can get to you. Speed of information to you. Large quantities through networks very quickly in large amounts that were not possible twenty years ago. So, yeah, it's a good. I didn't get into that deep enough in the the book, but it's a good book. It's a great book. Just, I need to, if I had a book study, that's a point I would hit on with people is I would, I would, I would really focus in on that. He was saying, Kamer is not a spirit store. What's <laughs> No kidding. That's funny. Very true though. Uh, Vanessa saying, I was banned from Denny. Oh my goodness, Vanessa. You're banned from a lot of places here. Banned Toys R Us. Now Denny's uh, from uh, Enfield, Connecticut for decades as well. New owners in 2010, and so I'm no longer banned. Yikes. What in the world is going on, Vanessa? Uh, the Toys R Us is a giant total wine store. Yeah. So, yeah, as I go through our town, you know, you can see like that used to be the Staples, that used to be this, used to be that, that used to be the Wendy's. <laughs> and it was like a repurposed, and but they still have, like kind of the signature form to them. So, um, so yeah. So, um, a few things. One is, let me go here to. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, it is the pinned, um, it's pinned here in the chat, but I'm going to post it again. This is in today's newspaper where I'm at. That's me right there. Okay, Uh, that's Doc. And uh, this is the Porridge Jelly Register. Um, If you would not mind, that's the article author front page. Pretty cool. but there were no comments on this article. So I think you can leave a comment or you can find it on Facebook too. But I mean, I don't want you to have to set up an account, right? But if you're able to leave a comment, like read the article, leave a comment, that'd be, that'd be kind of cool. Um, but uh, it's a, it's a cool article. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's neat. We have a really cool, cool library too. So as you look at this picture, like people have kind of pointed that out, like, our library was built about 20 years ago, and then they updated it. They built a basically double the size of it about five years ago. But it's built in this really cool architecture style with a lot of wood, right? a lot of earthy tones. They didn't go new age. They didn't go postmodern on it, which um, some places do. And it has very distinct zones. Like here's the teen zone. Here's like the adult zone. Here's the reading room. Here's like the kids area. It's just it's really well done. It feels like a library. You just have this this kind of this warmth you want to read, like when you go in there and, and uh, obtain knowledge. Versus like, um, I don't know. I've just been in like a, some libraries that are just like you know from nineteen seventies, where it's just like fluorescent lighting, or else you like go into these new libraries where it looks like it's just like postmodern. It's like whoa, God. It's just it's really it's a great asset to our community. So I'm very thankful for that. Um, so. Yeah, but um, I am. I'm glad to do the read. I'm going to keep doing that here for the next few weeks out of Lost of Information, pulling out some of the parts in it. I think next week we might go. I think we're going to go to Parkinson's Law. Let's do that. Let's do that next week. I'll tell you the story about Aaron Sawyer. 
and Redline VR, virtual reality in Chicago. That's an awesome story in the book. So let's do that. Let's do Parkinson's Law for next week. Um, and thank all of I thank all of you for being here. Um, that means uh, a lot. So the the show, <laughs> the channel has one thousand one hundred seventy eight subscribers, and like it it went from like three hundred in October to like that number, and it just stayed there. So if you're not subscribed, please subscribe. It's just it's funny that it's just like is there. Um, and then of course, watch hours help. So our good friend Bolo is not here to, you know, go in and watch on eight different devices for a week to bring things up. But, um, I'm still not to the point where I can be monetized with watch hours. So I'm hoping like I get there at some point. Um, but yeah, I appreciate all of you. I appreciate, uh, the, the show having the discussions. So, um, Andrew, uh, Vanessa Heath. John Rice, um, yeah, Solitude, uh, going back here, uh, Zippy. So I appreciate all, all of you. And uh, I am going to uh, roll this show out here uh, for the evening. And uh, but first, I'm going to uh, to bring you over to bring you over here. I'm going to show you. This is what that article looks like online. So got my book there and. Uh, yeah, there's the librarian. There's a couple other images. Let's check these out. Oh, that's just the, the book is up there. So I got one. But yeah, it's a cool one. There's a story. So I can't get any more into it, but um, it's cool. So yeah, well, thanks, uh, everybody. Hey, yep, and CNT Designs, uh, Heath, I appreciate uh, all of you. So I am going to uh, sign out here for the night. It has been a great one. Um, I'll set this, uh, start working on Parkinson's law for next week and, uh, we'll get an idea for that. So crisis, chaos, bifurcations, strange attractors, things that we went through tonight. So I'm going to take us out the same way I took us in, but first I'm going to do, Hey, if you haven't already thumbs up, subscribe, subscribe from your nine different YouTube channels that helps out the show. Um, I appreciate that very much. Uh, smash that like button, which you've done. Appreciate that. Remember, two books out there. The uh, the old. Oh, by the way, like velocity. Here's velocity of inf information in paperback. Uh, so I have a couple of these now. And actually, um, this is I. <laughs> this is this is the book I read because it's so easy to uh, to open up and and to to go through the the hard copy. You know, is definitely kind of like the stoic book. But like, if I'm just going to read. Like this uh, paperback is kind of works out better for me. So uh, my two books, um, if School of Errors right here, most honest book ever written about the $3 billion school safety industry. Really cool take, really keen take, I should say, on the 9-11 Harbor Rescue of 500,000 people, nine hours right here. School of Errors, check that out. And of course, our good friend, Philosophy of Information officially releasing April 1st. You can put in your order now. And once you get it, please review it. I would definitely, or I will definitely appreciate that. So I'm going to hide that banner. I'm going to say thank you to all of you. Hey, thanks for a wonderful, I appreciate that. So yeah, don't create an account. It's not, <laughs> I didn't know how that works. So don't worry about it then. Um, so um, wonderful. Yeah, it's it's cool. 
So I appreciate that. Have a good night, Heath. Yeah, thanks. And uh, later to everybody, our good friend here is C&T. Um, appreciate it very much, buddy. So who, I think he's thinking about, what can I do in Doc's background there? Like, what could I, what could I do in metal that would make that absolutely like just pop back there that would be kind of Doc thing? That's what C&T is thinking right now. So let me go back here. I'll take us out the same way I took us in, everybody. And if I can, oh, and I can. All right. And here we go. All right, everybody, take care. Thank you so much. Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perotti. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perotti on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. As chaos erupts, torrents of conflicting yet urgent messages gush from media outlets. What is the magnitude of the incident, and what should people do to protect themselves? Dr. David Perodin clarifies human behavior during days, weeks, months, or even years of chaos. Reporter James David Dixon of the Detroit News proclaims, the velocity of information is an education in the way people react and adapt to change. Never has it been more important to sift facts and stories for truth and meaning. The velocity of information will teach you how people have done it in history, in the modern day, and even in prison. There are teachable moments on every page. Buy the velocity of information, human thinking during chaotic times. Available from your favorite bookstore or online retailer. A must read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, A brave demonstration of speaking truth to power. School of Errors rips the lid off the billion-dollar school safety industry. Using real-world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. As chaos erupts, torrents of conflicting yet urgent messages gush from media outlets. What is the magnitude of the incident, and what should people do to protect themselves? Dr. David P. Perodin teaches you how to prevent mental burnout by observing indicators and building a robust member check network. 
Reporter James David Dixon of the Detroit News proclaims, the velocity of information will empower its readers. Drawing on current events, history, interviews, and scholarship, the velocity of information is an education in the way people react and adapt to change in this fast-spinning world. Never has it been more important to sift facts and stories for truth and meaning. There are teachable moments on every page. Buy the Velocity of Information, Human Thinking During Chaotic Times. Available from your favorite bookstore or online retailer. Hi everybody, this is the Safety Doc with a face validity check-in here on March 31st, 2020. Bellevue, Washington has started a tool to report stay-home violations. This is from the government website in Bellevue, Washington. So we're going to scroll down here to my Bellevue portal and then to report gatherings. They've made it convenient. There's a map on the right. You can drag a location over here into address, write a description, and then also include photos. This is a practice we've seen in some areas of the country, but it's gonna be more prevalent. Look for it in your area probably in the next week or two.